This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 280 of the program. Today is March 5th, and before we get started, I want to take some time, as we usually do, to thank all of the folks who make this show possible. All of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, and that includes Ainsley Shalcross, James Boyles, and Christina Marie Oaks. Thank you all so much for helping this show not just to survive but thrive as well if you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution you could do so by going to humanistreport.com support patreon.com humanistreport or by clicking join underneath any one of our youtube videos this week we have another jam-packed episode for you we'll talk about the fight for 15 and how biden's administration is trying to weasel their way out of it but thankfully progressives like bernie sanders are holding the biden administration's feet to the fire we'll also discuss the andrew cuomo scandals that's scandals plural bill maher's rant about cancel culture and we will of course cover the insanity that took place over the weekend at cpac and i'll share what i think were the dumbest moments of the event and of course we'll We'll talk about Donald Trump's speech. And when it comes to the pandemic, the governor of Texas has basically declared that it is now over. Meanwhile, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis never really took it seriously, although he is making sure that wealthy Floridians and campaign contributors get to jump the line when it comes to the vaccine. So we'll talk about that. Also, Elizabeth Warren proposes a wealth tax. And finally, Former QAnon members and families of QAnon members were featured on a CNN panel with Alison Camerota, and I definitely want to talk about that. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. I hope you all enjoy the program. Let's get right to it. So last Friday, President Joe Biden decided to illegally and unconstitutionally bomb Syria, and we also learned that um, he is giving up on the $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah, because, you know, his hands are tied. He can't do anything. The unelected Senate parliamentarian who serves as an advisory role uh, said you can't pass the $15 an hour minimum wage using budget reconciliation. You need 60 votes. So the most powerful person in our government said, you know what? My hands are now tied. The Senate parliamentarian spoke and um, I can't do anything except you actually can. Uh, The Senate parliamentarian can easily be overrided by the vice president. Kamala Harris. That would take 50 votes. It's pretty easy. So it seems to me like even though you could get the 50 votes needed to secure a minimum wage increase using budget reconciliation, you're choosing to unilaterally disarm when you still have a reason to fight. However, when it comes to Neera Tandon, when it is abundantly clear that you do not have 50 votes, well, you're still committed to quote unquote, fighting your guts out for her. So it seems to me like the Biden administration's priorities are ass backwards. You care more about confirming Neera Tandon, a corporate Democrat, than giving millions of Americans a minimum wage increase. Now, uh, it's almost like we should be asking the Biden administration why it seems as if they're prioritizing an appointment over a wage increase for their constituents, who they promised 
they'd pass the minimum wage for him. And uh, thankfully, somebody did ask this question to uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, and you're going to see that she had no good answer because there really is no good answer. Like, their position here is indefensible. And you're going to see her struggle to explain away their choice to move away from the minimum wage. Take a look. The parliamentarian decision, you said that he respects that decision, but progressives don't understand this. In some respect, they're like, why not fight for this? So why is the White House not more aggressively challenging that and sending the vice president to try and you know, potentially overrule that with the vote? Well, uh, the the decision for a vice, the vice president to uh, vote to overrule or to take a step to overrule is not a simple decision. Uh, it would also require 50 votes. Uh, as you know, it's not a one-step decision. And the president and the vice president both respect uh, the history of the Senate. Uh, they are both formally served in the Senate, and that's not an action we intend to take. But I the president is committed to raising the minimum wage, to working to determine the best vehicle forward to doing that. That's why he put it in the package. He wants it to be raised to $15 an hour, and he will be in touch with uh, leaders uh, from all wings of the party in determining the best path forward for that. Go ahead, Jeff. A follow-up to Jeff's question, which, which strikes me. The, the, the White House doesn't have 50 votes to confirm Neera Tandon as OMB director, and yet uh, we heard from the White House chief of staff say that the White House is they're going to fight their guts out, fight our guts out was the phrase he used to get her confirmed. So why push for that and not push as hard, one could say, for raising the minimum wage? You could make the argument that the American people stand to benefit more from a higher wage than they would from a chosen OMB director. Well, I think that's mixing a few things um, kind of irresponsibly, if I'm just being totally honest. Um, I would say on the minimum wage, the president included a raise of the minimum wage in his package because he felt strongly that it's long overdue, that men and women working hard, trying to make ends meet, shouldn't be living at the poverty level. That's why he put it in his package. There is a process that go it goes through, a parliamentary process, it, when it's a reconciliation bill, as you know, but for people who haven't been following all the nitty-gritty of this, because it's a budgetary bill. Uh, that's why it went through the process. And, uh, you know, again, I would, I would send you to talk to leaders in Congress to see if they have the 50 votes necessary, but regardless, the president, the vice president, have made the decision they're not going to move forward uh, with that step, but also it's not a simple process. It requires two steps. As it relates to Neera Tandon, she is somebody who has decades of experience. Uh, she is qualified. She is uh, prepared to lead the budget uh, team. And uh, we're continuing, of course, to fight for the confirmation of, uh, of every nominee uh, that the president puts forward. We'll see if we have 50 votes. That's part of the journey. That's part of democracy in action. That was genuinely cringeworthy. That was genuinely cringeworthy. Okay, understand why what she's saying is nonsensical. Um, she says that if... The Biden administration chose to overrule what the Senate parliamentarian says. That would require 50 votes, and it's not a simple decision. Except she also says that Biden is committed to raising the minimum wage. Okay, well, you kind of are disproving that that's actually the case, because if it's going to take 50 votes to override the Senate parliamentarian, well, if you're truly committed, isn't that the easier route to go? Because if you don't override the Senate parliamentarian, then that will mean uh, you're going to have to get 60 votes to increase the minimum wage. Whereas if you override the Senate parliamentarian, you need 50 votes. And Kamala Harris could do just that, using her role as vice president.
So if you're committed to actually passing the minimum wage increase that you said you were multiple times throughout the course of your campaign, then you don't say, well, you know what? We have to do what the Senate parliamentarian says and find 60 votes. No, you pass it getting 50 votes. Like she makes it seem like getting 50 votes to override the Senate parliamentarian is uh, less possible than finding 60 votes to pass the minimum wage increase. This is delusional. It's it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And I love what that second reporter who asked the follow-up said there. Why push for near attendance confirmation and not push as hard for raising the minimum wage? Don't the American people stand to benefit more from the minimum wage than a chosen OMB director? That was such a great question. That reporter, whoever that individual is, is doing a great job. Kudos to that person. Uh, yeah, that's precisely it. And I love how Jen Psaki's response was, oh, well, I think that that's mixing a few things kind of irresponsibly. Is it irresponsible, though, or is it more inconvenient because you don't have a good answer to that? Uh, you know, again, I would I would send you to talk to leaders in Congress to see if they have the 50 votes necessary. But regardless, the president, the vice president have made the decision they're not going to move forward uh, with that step. But as it relates to Neera Tandon, we'll see if we have 50 votes. That's part of the journey. That's part of democracy in action. Even though it's very clear Biden does not have the 50 votes needed to get near attendant confirmed, he's not going to withdraw. They're going to fight their little hearts out for her. But when it comes to the minimum wage, well, you know, we just we can't pass it using budget reconciliation. So, you know, we, we have to walk away from it at this moment. But we're still going to fight. We promise you, even though now when we have a real opportunity to pass it, we're walking away. But we're still going to fight. Please believe us. I mean, <sighs> This is why people don't trust Democrats, because their word is shit. Now, I can't play this video, but Dem Watchdog on Twitter, they put together a fantastic compilation where they showcase all of the times that Joe Biden promised that he would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour on the campaign trail. And now immediately he is already walking back that promise. You see, it's not that Joe Biden's hands are tied here and that he has no route to getting this done if he truly wants it done, it's that he probably doesn't actually want to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, I'm speculating about his motives here, but he can prove me wrong by fighting for this. It seems like the minute he found an out, a convenient excuse, he chose to take it because he doesn't actually want to raise the minimum wage. But I want to read an article by David Sirota that he wrote for the Daily Poster titled, Stop Pretending Biden is a Powerless Bystander, because this narrative is absolute horseshit. Now, in this article, David Sirota explains how presidents can use the power that they have to affect the legislative process in a really meaningful way. And he cites Lyndon Johnson's fight for Medicare as an example. Quote, in 1964, Johnson was trying to pass Medicare, but two conservative Democratic senators threatened to take down the entire legislation over a tax issue. Sound familiar? In a story flagged by economist Stephanie Kelton, the New York Times noted that months before that legislation passed, opponents proposed a large and popular increase in Social Security benefits and taxes, which would have made passage of new Medicare taxes almost impossible. At the last minute, Senators George Smathers of Florida and Russell Long of Louisiana, both Democrats, but Medicare opponents switched and voted to save Medicare. Johnson told me to, Senator Smathers explained. The pivotal story was recounted in more detail in The Heart of Power by Harvard University's David Blumenthal, a former Obama administration official, and Brown University's James Monroe. They write, Johnson knew there was 
was an indispensable role that only he could play. He could best publicize the idea, build support, jawbone interest groups into line, and organize and lobby the congressional coalition. When reporters asked Senator George Smathers why he had switched his vote and salvaged the administration's Medicare proposal in 1964, he responded simply, Lyndon told me to. Presidents win complicated reforms by doing what the office of the presidency is uniquely designed for, publicizing and persuading. There is, of course, a danger at the other extreme, that of the disengaged executive. The president chooses his analysts, gives them directions, and decides when the debate is over. The staff always knows when the boss has lost interest, and the issue, no matter how well-staffed, is probably doomed. So the moral of the story is that whether or not the minimum wage hike lives or dies will hinge entirely on Joe Biden and Joe Biden alone. He is the president of the United States. He can use his influence. He could use his bully pulpit to get this accomplished if he actually is willing to fight for it. But the fact that he's showing his willingness to cave, that tells us he doesn't want to fight for it. It's his decision to unilaterally disarm and to back down. Now, it also makes him look terrible because David Sirota makes the fantastic point that Joe Biden ran on talking about his experience, his ability to build coalitions in government and even reach across the aisle to get it done. So if you can't get the corporate Democrats that you need on board, maybe find some Republicans. I mean, that's very unlikely, but at a minimum, you can at least persuade Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. Can you not? You're the president of the United States. You have so many tools at your disposal, but we're supposed to believe that because the Senate parliamentarian told you you can't pass this using budget rec reconciliation, that that's it? Procedure is stopping you from getting this done? Do you think that the American people are going to accept that as a plausible excuse? They're not. They're going to blame you, and you are going to get wiped out in 2022 and 2024 because the people who came out to vote for you, because you promised them things like a minimum wage increase, they're not going to return. And Democrats are going to prove to the electorate once again that their word is shit. So don't allow the spinsters and Democratic Party loyalists in media to pretend as if Joe Biden did everything he could here, because that is a lie. If they want to get this done using budget reconciliation, they can. Kamala Harris can override the Senate parliamentarian, and Joe Biden can use his influence as president to get individuals like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema on board if he truly wants to fight for this. But the fact that they're already showing you that they don't want to fight, that's not because of circumstances. That's because of Joe Biden. So I can only speculate on what Joe Biden's true intentions are here. I don't actually think that he wants to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. I think that he only made this promise on the campaign trail because if he didn't promise at least a $15 an hour minimum wage, he wouldn't have been viable during the Democratic Party primary. So I think he probably just said what he needed to say to advance. But now you can tell that he's looking for any excuse he can possibly find to not fight for the $15 an hour minimum wage. I mean, even before the Senate parliamentarian made her recommendation, he was already privately signaling to governors that he wasn't going to have the votes needed to pass the $15 an hour minimum wage. But now, since the Senate parliamentarian is saying we can't pass this using budget reconciliation, he is basically throwing up his hands and saying, well, that's it. I mean, we tried, but it's all over now, folks. My hands are tied. The Senate parliamentarian, an unelected person, has spoken, and this individual alone is overriding me 
the president of the United States. It's just ridiculous. And it's not a not an excuse that voters of the Democratic Party are going to accept come 2022. Uh, but thankfully, there are individuals who are elected to Congress that are actually willing to fight. One of them, of course, is Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders, who is pledging to force a vote on the $15 an hour minimum wage. And he's saying, we're going to ignore the Senate parliamentarian. So as Alexander Bolton of The Hill reports, Sanders on Monday declared he would not back down on his signature wage initiative after Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough ruled last week that a provision setting the minimum wage at $15 an hour would not be eligible under special budget rules Democrats are using to avoid a filibuster while passing their coronavirus relief bill. My personal view is that the idea that we have a Senate staffer, a high-ranking Senate staffer deciding whether 30 million Americans get a pay raise or not is nonsensical. We have got to make that decision, not a staffer who's unelected. So my own view is that we should ignore the rulings, the decision of the parliamentarian, Sanders told reporters. Sanders said he will force a vote on an amendment raising the federal minimum wage this week. And that right there is exactly what I want to see. I want to see leftist members of Congress actually fight. Because to just accept that there's nothing left that can be done is absolutely preposterous. Uh, I think that David Sirota made a phenomenal point in a new article for the Daily Poster. He said that these issues, historically, whatever a president is choosing to focus on, like that really determines whether or not that issue lives or dies. Presidents alone can use their bully pulpit to elevate the salience of particular issues determine how important that issue is. So if Joe Biden doesn't think a federal minimum wage increase of $15 an hour is important, he could just lose interest in it and that issue would die because the president is choosing to move away from that. So we can't let that happen. And that means you have to keep the pressure on, but not just in the Senate. And the House as well. And I think that uh, elected members of Congress in the House, namely members of the squad and newest members, they are not backing down here. And as Hannah Trudeau of the Daily Beast reports, minutes after the Senate parliamentarian advised against keeping the proposed $15 minimum wage hike in the American Rescue Plan, key House Democrats formed a group chat over text message to discuss tactics for pressuring President Joe Biden to keep his crucial campaign pledge. On Friday evening and into the weekend, prominent progressives took to cable news to criticize what they considered to be a bureaucratic hurdle to moving the country past stagnantly low wages. Senator Bernie Sanders, the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, told CNN's Anderson Cooper that the decision was upsetting. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said on Mehdi Hassan's inaugural segment on MSNBC that they should override the parliamentarian, asserting that constituents and people across this country put Democrats in power to raise the baseline wage. After a weekend of activity, Ro Khanna sent a one-page letter with 22 Democrats early on Monday, including those involved in the text exchange, and other top members like Ocasio-Cortez to Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris calling on them to refute McDonald's recommendation. Overruling the parliamentarian would go against long-standing Senate norms, but it is not without precedent. Connell's letter cites a moment when in 1967, former Vice President Hubert Humphrey bucked the rules authorities' guidance to reduce the filibuster threshold from two-thirds of those present to three-fifths, among other instances. Some progressives are now turning their attention specifically towards Harris to do so, who could ultimately overturn McDonald's stance. And this is exactly what I want to see. And I think that focusing their attention on Kamala Harris specifically is really important because Kamala Harris, she's always tried to pretend as if she's more progressive than other corporate Democrats, but in actuality, she's not. She is someone who is a neoliberal corporate Democrat. She backed away from Medicare for All. She has a history of jailing poor black and brown folks 
for not sending their kids to school or smoking weed. So this individual, if she truly wants anyone to think that she's actually a progressive and not a fraud, now is the time to put up or shut up. Use the power that you have to override the Senate parliamentarian. And if you don't act here, you're telling us that you don't actually support a $15 an hour minimum wage. You're telling us that when you run in 2024 or 2028, anything that you say is bullshit because whatever you run on, that's just campaign promises that you will abandon the minute it becomes politically expedient or convenient. You'll use any excuse imaginable. So keeping the pressure on them is absolutely key in this moment. Because again, if Joe Biden chooses to give up on this issue, then as the president, what he says usually goes. So we can't let that happen. We have to maintain pressure and we have to make sure that elected progressives do not stop fighting. Because the minute they accept Joe Biden's lame excuses that, oh, I can't pass this because the Senate parliamentarian said so, that's when this issue dies. So progressives like Bernie Sanders and the squad, they have to keep this alive. And I'm glad that that's what they're doing. Does anyone remember when Bakari Sellers tweeted out, y'all almost had Cynthia Nixon. This is why experience matters. Because I certainly remember that hot take. Uh, does anyone remember the Cuomo sexual phenomenon? Or when liberal satirist Randy Rainbow made a song literally glorifying Andrew Cuomo, professing his love for Andrew Cuomo? I guess I'm saying I, 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 I love you so. Oh, Andy. I've given up trying to understand the way that liberals think. Um, <laughs> the reason why I'm bringing this up is because uh, it turns out Andrew Cuomo is bad actually he's as bad if not worse than the left and progressives said he was and now a third accuser has come out accusing andrew cuomo of sexual harassment but before we get to that story i want to talk about the lead up to um this giant scandal that he's now involved in because a lot has taken place over the course of a couple of weeks and um it's basically snowballing and now there are literally calls for andrew cuomo to resign like he was the presumptive 2024 slash 2028 democratic party nominee and now we're seeing his career implode so as daniel morans of huffpost explains new york governor andrew cuomo has had a rough couple of weeks his decision early in the pandemic to force nursing homes to accept covid 19 positive patients morphed into a national scandal when it emerged that cuomo's administration hit the number of deaths in those facilities a browbeating phone call to ron kim a democratic state assemblyman generated a new round of negative headlines about his well-known penchant for bullying on wednesday lindsey boylan a former aide accused cuomo of sexual harassment and on saturday a second former aide charlotte bennett accused cuomo of sexual harassment as well it's a stunning fall from grace for a governor whose daily televised press conferences during the pandemic won him an emmy award and the adoring moniker america's governor media outlets fawned over him and in a telling display of arrogance he wrote a book about his leadership in the fight against covid19 only months into a pandemic that is still raging and fast forward to now, and it's only getting worse because a third accuser, as I stated earlier, has come forward and alleged that he made unwanted sexual advances and very inappropriate over-the-line behavior. And uh, this behavior was actually captured on photo, the photo that you're seeing right now of him grabbing this woman's face. 
And even before we heard about the story from the third accuser, uh, there have been calls for him to resign as the investigation into these allegations of sexual harassment are now being uh, looked into. So as Reed Wilson of The Hill reports, New York Democrats are putting pressure on Governor Andrew Cuomo to leave office in the middle of mounting scandals over his personal and professional conduct. The state's attorney general, Letitia James, said Monday she had received the authorization to investigate allegations of sexual harassment leveled against the governor last week by two female former employees and would make her findings public. In a radio interview Monday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said the latest allegations that Cuomo harassed Bennett left him sickened, just disgusting, creepy, de Blasio said. Asked in a press conference later that day if Cuomo should step down, de Blasio responded if someone purposefully tried to use their power to force a woman to have sex with them, of course that's someone who should no longer be in public service. Cuomo said late Sunday he had not intended to offend or cause harm in his remarks to Bennett. He acknowledged that what he termed being playful and making jokes may have been misconstrued. Oh, is that so? They may have been misconstrued. In the Me Too era, you're doing all of this and you didn't think about the way that your actions would be construed? I mean, is this really an excuse that anyone is going to accept? So you have the mayor of New York City calling on the governor of New York to resign, you know, inadvertently, uh, in a non-explicit way, but nonetheless... He's heavily implying that Cuomo should resign, and on top of that, you have top Democrats, such as Nancy Pelosi, saying the sexual harassment allegations against him are, quote, credible. And now his political career is falling apart. And for once, perhaps in his entire life, he's actually being held accountable for his actions. So um, this is still a developing story. By the time you see this video, uh, perhaps more accusers come forward, more details emerge regarding different scandals it's just that now like everyone is kind of coming forward it usually takes like one to speak up and then a domino effect happens lindsey boylan actually shared her story months ago and only now the press is taking it seriously because there are other stories about andrew cuomo where people are coming forward saying he uh, bullied us he um he lied about the deaths related to covid19 in nursing homes so now more is likely going to come to light now let's wait and see if there's actually going to be any accountability sure he's being held accountable uh in the public side for now but what really what we really need to see is pressure for him to resign because someone who has done all of this abused their power should not hold elected office so he needs to do the right thing and resign will he do that though uh, i don't think so nonetheless let's keep the pressure up and if more people have stories i hope that they do share that because i think this is important i think that uh this matters accountability matters so for those of you unaware, CPAC took place over the weekend and it was, I think, probably more unhinged than it usually is. Like to say that people gave bizarre speeches where they said really stupid things. That's just kind of what we expect from CPAC. But I mean, it, it really, it, this year more so than other years, I think, it demonstrates how crazy the Republican Party has gotten. And there were a lot of really bizarre moments, a lot of compilations that I could put together, but I'm going to focus on the leader of the Republican Party speech, Donald Trump, because he returned and his speech was uh, exactly like his other speeches. He did not get new material. He said the same exact thing. And this wasn't necessarily a conference for conservatism. Rather, it was 
a church, if you will, intended to worship Donald Trump, as evidenced by this literal golden statue of Donald Trump that people took pictures by. So, this is a cult. This is a pro-Trump cult. This is not about the conservative ideology. This was a conference about the future of Donald Trump's Republican Party. Now, there were a couple of moments that stood out to me when he made a speech, even though it was pretty mundane and, and dull. You know, he said everything that Trump supporters wanted him to say. He played the greatest hits. Um, but unsurprisingly, he still is reciting the lie that he won this last election. We won the election twice. I mean, you know, think about it. Twice. This lie literally incited a violent insurrection, and he's still saying it. So he is completely irresponsible. He doesn't care at all. Like, him saying this got him impeached. Not convicted, but it got him impeached. And he's still saying it. Not necessarily surprising, but it still is disgusting. And even if he's not president any longer, I don't think he should get a pass for lying about democracy, especially if it has very dangerous ramifications. Now, one thing that he said, it stood out to me. It was really interesting because this was actually a little bit surprising. He shot down this idea that he's starting a brand new party. We're not starting new parties. You know, they kept saying... He's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. Fake news. No. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Let's start a new party and let's divide our vote so that you can never win. No, we're not interested in that. That is actually interesting to me. I didn't think he'd be aware about the repercussions of him starting a new party because obviously at least in the short term that would split the conservative votes and lead to more democratic party victories so i feel like he didn't like come to this conclusion even though it's pretty obvious on his own accord i feel like somebody told him that this would be the result because he doesn't like the republican party and in uh, more clips i'm going to show you he takes aim at people in the republican party so i think it's evident that he wants to start something new but he probably also realizes that you don't have to start a new party to be the leader of a party even if you're not the president you are still in control of the republican party now take a look at what he said when he heavily hinted that uh, or what happened when he heavily hinted that he'd be running again in 2024 the crowd absolutely went wild but who knows who knows i may even decide to beat them for a third time okay With your help, we will take back the House, we will win the Senate, and then a Republican president will make a triumphant return to the White House. And I wonder who that will be. I wonder who that will be. They still love him. This is still Donald Trump's party. CPAC proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Republican Party is the Patriot Party. The Republican Party is Donald Trump's party. Now, if you look at a straw poll from CPAC, Donald Trump gets more than 50% 
of the Republican Party base, at least of attendees there, but other polls show him doing even better. And then in second, you have someone like Ron DeSantis. So anyone who even has a shot at maybe possibly challenging Donald Trump, it's because they're Trump sycophants. So this party, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is Donald Trump's party. Now, will he run again? I think he made it pretty clear that he's going to run again. He heavily hinted at it, but didn't commit. And I, I think that he knows if he formally announces a run, then that that raises some issues there. You can't coordinate with your super PAC once you've announced because that's illegal. So not that Donald Trump cares about breaking the law, but he's not going to make it official just yet. But he's going to run in 2024. And I think this is uh, this is shitty. This is why he should have been convicted in the Senate. Because the impact that he has on political discourse is terrible. He, he's toxic. He's divisive. Uh, he, in this last year, showed that he's a full-blown full authoritarian. He would have stolen this last election from Joe Biden had he been able to actually do that, had he gotten enough Republicans in state parties across the country to actually do his bidding. Like, this is an individual who pressured the Georgia Secretary of State to just find the votes needed for him to steal that state. Like, this is an authoritarian. So the fact that he's running again, needless to say, this doesn't bode well for the health and longevity of our democracy. Um, and I love how he throws in there, I may decide to beat the Democrats for a third time. Like, he's just, he, he's incapable of, of admitting that he lost. And again, this, uh, going back to like the third party issue, the things that he says about Senate Republicans, like he takes aim at them and attacks them, like the, the response that he garnered by attacking Republicans from that crowd, it shows why making a third party, if you're Donald Trump, it's not even necessary because the Republican Party, this is your party. This isn't just your party. This is your cult. So take a look at what he said about some Republicans. Democrats don't have grandstanders like Mitt Romney, Little Ben Sass, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins. Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey. And in the House, Tom Rice, South Carolina, Adam Kinzinger, Dan Newhouse, Anthony Gonzalez, that's another beauty, Fred Upton, Jamie Herrera Butler, Peter Meyer, John Katko, David Valadeo, and of course, the warmonger, a person that loves seeing our troops fighting, Liz Cheney. How about that? The good news is in her state, she's been censured, and in her state, her poll numbers have dropped faster than any human being I've ever seen. So hopefully they'll get rid of her with the next election. Get rid of them all. It is hilariously ironic to me that he's calling Liz Cheney a warmonger. He's right about that. No doubt. She is a warmonger. Her dad should be in prison for the rest of his life. She's a warmonger. But I mean, Donald Trump isn't necessarily the correct messenger for this because he himself is a warmonger. You ramped up drones in the Middle East and North Africa more than 400%. You were talked out of bombing Iran by Tucker Carlson, reportedly, of all people. You bombed Syria like Joe Biden multiple times. So to suggest that you're not a warmonger is laughable. It's absolutely laughable. 
Now, um, in terms of him attacking Republicans, I will say that I absolutely welcome the Republican Party infighting because this is a good thing. I want them to go after each other because the Democratic Party has been at odds with each other, you know, the left and the progressive wing against the establishment centrist wing for quite some time now. So, you know, Republicans have benef benefited from them being relatively united. So if Donald Trump is taking aim at some Republicans, I like this. You know, he's drawing a line in the sand. And the thing about Republican Party infighting is that unlike the Democratic side, there's a clear winner here. Donald Trump is already the winner because you can see the way that he is able to garner a response when he attacks Senate Republicans. And guess what? This is my favorite, uh, genuinely my favorite moment from the entire speech that he gave. And I'm saying this unironically because he attacks a Republican, um, not necessarily in a really like sharp way, but he, he cites a Republican and look at the way that the crowd responded. They booed this particular Republican. I'm of course talking about Mitch McConnell, probably the most effective Republican party lawmaker in recent history. Um, because Donald Trump doesn't like him, they don't like him as well. My endorsement of Mitch McConnell at his request. It's all right. It's all right. Now, he made a request. He asked for my endorsement. Brought him from one point down to 20 points up. And he won his race in the great state and actually the great commonwealth of Kentucky. And he won it. And he won it very easily. And I said, I wonder if I'm doing the right thing here. But you know what? I did, I did what I did. But he went from one point down to 20 points up very quickly, immediately, actually. Hearing Republicans boo Mitch McConnell was like music to my ears. Yes, please do boo the most effective lawmaker on your side. The individual who got through so many federal judicial appointments for Donald Trump, the individual who literally stole two Supreme Court seats. Am I happy that the Republican Party is turning on him because he supposedly turned on Donald Trump, even if he didn't vote to convict Donald Trump, even if he's already signaling support for Trump's 2024 run? Yes, I'm happy that they're turning on Mitch McConnell because if the Republican base doesn't like Mitch McConnell, then in a way that could stop Mitch McConnell's effectiveness but who knows because mitch mcconnell he's never really cared about like what public opinion thinks about him i mean if he did then he would be less shameless in the way he is like destroying our country and perpetuating this late stage capitalist dystopian hellhole that we're living in currently but uh the fact that they're turning on mitch mcconnell like they're they're cutting off their noses despite their faces and i love it. this is a good thing now i don't have any more clips to show you but a couple of other moments that stood out to me is donald trump is taking credit for the covid vaccine and we know from reports that donald trump had no plan to distribute the vaccine but now he is taking credit for it now i don't necessarily care like donald trump is always going to be overly braggadocious about every single thing that he does when it comes to this lie because it has the potential to maybe create a positive outcome i'm not as mad about him taking credit for the covid vaccine i mean sure he can get some credit to an extent but to say that he gets full credit for getting americans vaccinated is is horseshit but if he is talking about the vaccine in a positive way if he's trying to take credit for the positive for the vaccine then this could have a positive effect on society because his conspiratorial supporters who think that the vaccine is a way for elites like bill gates to like microchip people if that gets them more likely to take the vaccine if this reduces vaccine hesitancy nationwide 
I'm going to support Donald Trump uh, taking uh, credit for it. He may be uh, wrong here to take credit for the vaccine when he didn't really do what's needed to get it distributed to Americans. But still, if he takes credit, maybe that will influence his supporters to want to get vaccinated. Uh, furthermore, he also took aim at trans people because, of course, if you are a Republican, you punch down. That's what you do. Um, you prop up elites and uh, the wealthy billionaire class and the millionaire class and you punch down at marginalized communities and what's funny is he echoed the same turf sentiment that we've seen from even uh democrats like tulsi gabbard who claim that trans women are ruining sports for cisgender women this is not some epidemic that's happening this is basically bathroom panic 2.0 it's a way to create hysteria which ultimately drives hatred for transgender americans trump said the same exact thing trump who is not a feminist mind you is saying this, the same exact thing that turfs are saying so if you agreed with uh, hillary clinton or uh, tulsi gabbard here if you took this anti-trans stance you are now also in agreement with donald trump so all of the shitty people uh, have the same stance when it comes to uh, trans issues so don't be on the bad side of history here because you can tell that it's not going to go your way. Get on the right side of history and support trans people. Don't be duped by this non-issue related to trans and sports. But that is an entirely different subject. I just wanted to share some of what I think are the moments that aren't necessarily crazy. They just, um, they stood out to me. You know, uh, anything that Donald Trump says, it doesn't really surprise me because I think like everyone, I've become desensitized. Uh, but one thing that is absolutely 100% crystal clear to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, is Trump is still in control of the Republican Party. Um, this CPAC speech, it wasn't necessarily anything new for Donald Trump. It just kind of reaffirmed that what was obvious is is still true. Uh, he's still in control. He's still the standard bearer for the Republican Party. And they absolutely love him. And they don't just love him. They worship him in some weird ways. So I wanted to present what I believe were the dumbest moments of CPAC 2021. Uh, this is in no way a comprehensive list. There were a lot more dumb moments that aren't going to be discussed in this video. And this isn't necessarily in any particular order. Nonetheless, this is what I think um, are the stupidest moments. We'll start with Ted Cruz. Freedom! Okay. Uh, he also joked about his trip to Cancun. God bless CPAC. I gotta say, Orlando is awesome. It's not as nice as Cancun. But it's nice. <laughs> is that so? Um, I like how already he's trying to play off that scandal as if it's not that big of a deal. This was kind of just, you know, a sensationalist story that the media really ran with. No, it proved that you are a piece of shit, as if we needed any more evidence. Um, additionally, I mean, one thing that I thought when I saw the photographs and video footage from this conference was that, oh my god, this is going to be the next super spreader event. You have hundreds, if not thousands of people there in you know auditoriums not wearing masks and when uh the crowd was asked to wear a mask they booed literally this is a room full of grown adults booing when they were asked to wear a mask 
Well, as Dan mentioned, we are in a private facility um, and we do want to be respectful of the um, ordinances that they have as their private property. So please, everyone, when you're in the ballroom, when you're seated, you should still be wearing a mask. So if everybody can go ahead, work on that. I know, I, I know it's, it's not the most fun. You, you have the right. You have the right to set the own rules in your own house, and we're borrowing somebody else's house. So we need to comply with their rules. So thank you all for putting on your masks. I wear a mask when I'm in the halls, and we're going to comply with their rules. Thank you, everyone. Have a good thank conference. You. Now, I'm not sure if you heard it or not, but one person literally yelled freedom when they were asked to wear masks. And no, we're not talking about this dipshit. Freedom! Imagine thinking that you're literally losing your freedom by being politely asked to wear a piece of cloth over your mouth and nose during a pandemic. I mean, these folks are not serious people. They're just not. Um, and you have a literal Republican lawmaker uh, who's in a position of power applaud the state of Florida for pretending as if, you know, the pandemic, it's not even a thing. What coronavirus? What's that? I want to tell you the truth. It is great to be in Florida where you guys are normal, you're open, I don't have to wear a mask anymore. That's so much better than California. You see, according to Republicans, it's actually normal to pretend as if pandemics aren't a thing, even when we're living through them. That's what's normal to them. You know, you walk around and you don't see anyone wearing masks and you don't have to wear a mask. It feels normal here. Really? The uh, thousands of deaths? don't make you think, hmm, maybe things aren't so normal. I mean, these are children. They think like children, and that's kind of an insult to children because I think that most children are more reasonable than Republicans. I see children wearing masks at the grocery store, and they don't seem to put up a fight. They don't seem to have an issue with it. It's only Republicans who have an issue with it because they claim that it impedes on their freedom to wear masks during a pandemic. Now, switching gears, I want to talk about the Fox News guy who uh, once said that he never washes his hands. Um, he is going to prove how he really has his finger on the pulse and how Republicans really are the party of the working class because he talks to normal Americans. And these are the issues that normal Americans actually care about. I sit down with a school teacher or a construction worker or a small business owner or a, a cook at a restaurant or the waitress at the, at the, at the restaurant we're at. And they're not talking about esoteric things that the Ivy League talks about or MSNBC talks about. They're talking about the Bible and faith and prayer and their family, hard work, supporting the police, standing for the anthem, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Tenth Amendment. It's apparent to me that this dude has never spoken to a normal person in his entire life. <laughs> Nobody talks about these things. Um, he says that these are the conversations that the peasants are having. Uh, they talk about the Bible and faith and prayer and their family. Really? They talk about this? Like, can you imagine a table dinner where, like, a father is asking his child, well, son, what kind of prayer did you do today? Oh, well, I don't know, Dad. I prayed to Jesus that the PS5 would be back in stock so I can order one and finally play Demon Souls. <laughs> like, 
no, nobody fucking talks like this. Like normal Americans aren't talking about things like this. They're not talking about the 10th amendment. I don't think a normal working class American can even tell you what the 10th amendment is. Like he says that they are talking about supporting the police hard work and standing for the national anthem yes because at the dinner table don't you remember how your family talks about how important it is that we stand for the national anthem and do hard work like this is weird like nobody's talking about this at the dinner table these aren't kitchen table issues kitchen table issues involves putting food on the table joking with your family and friends talking about like a massive dump you took like this isn't what normal people talk about like he's trying to seem relatable seem like he he talks to normal americans but you just proved how out of touch you are and i do have another clip um of this same guy he since he has his finger on the pulse of america he's going to claim that the left is now targeting math cancel culture has come for mathematics now literally they removed the classics they removed basic uh basic arithmetic math is now racist okay who said that math is racist point me to the liberal or the leftists, or anyone, for that matter, that said that math is racist. Citation needed. Like, I don't understand. Like, what are you talking about? But speaking of bad things that the left and liberals say and do, uh, Trump Jr. apparently had some breaking news that none of us were privy to at CPAC. They've banned the Muppets! You know that show that just got re-released on Disney+, Plus? that really old show? Actually, it didn't just get re-released. Contrary to popular belief, it was actually banned. It's not that Disney just put like a disclaimer before each episode, it got banned. Because I say so. I just made that up to prove that lefties are bad. And it's not Disney who did it, it's the left. Because Disney is the left. A large multi-billion dollar company is equal to the left and liberals. Now, I don't want to overlook a really important point that he's making about cancel culture because he does talk about how detrimental it is to American culture. And he explains, I think really um, eloquently, that the leftist mob is now even coming for potatoes because they want potatoes to be gender neutral now. Can you imagine thinking that potatoes should be gender neutral? Hasbro now wants a gender neutral Mr. Potato Head. These are the issues of our times, folks. I mean, if Hasbro really wanted a gender-neutral Mr. Potato Head so badly, they should just slap a picture of CNN's Brian Slettler on the cover of their next potato. What? <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Like, what? Look, at risk of sounding like an SJW, um, potatoes, much like all vegetables, are quite literally gender neutral because potatoes don't have genders. Perhaps you could find one that's shaped like a dick, or if you put two of them together, they look like balls, but potatoes don't have genders. So it's not really that outrageous that Mr. Potato Head is now Potato Head. And like, this begs the question, does anyone actually care about this? Does anyone actually feel any sense of outrage or uh, delight from the news about the potato head bullshit. Who cares? Like, the only folks who I see concerned about this are the Republicans who are using this as an example that the left's cancel culture has now come to potato head or Mr. Potato Head or Mrs. Potato Head. Nobody cares about this. I don't know a single person who even knows that this is news. 
it's not actually news. It's it's a non-story, but because you know, Fox News is so desperate to find any and all examples of cancel culture because that's what they're all about lately. I think it's Jim Jordan who actually called for hearings on cancel culture. Well, now this is their mission. They don't know what else to talk about. They can't talk about the working class, raising wages or giving workers, you know, unions. They can't talk about providing healthcare to Americans. So they are focusing on these culture war bullshit issues that don't have any meaning whatsoever. And he threw in a dig on Ryan Stelter of CNN. And I don't like, I genuinely am confused. Like, I don't get the joke. Is the joke that he looks like a potato, like his head is shaped like a potato? Or is the joke that Brian Stelter doesn't have a gender and that, like, his gender is amorphous? Like, I, I don't get it. And Trump Jr., like, he tries to be funny all the time, but it just comes off as cringeworthy. Like, do we remember, I think it was, like, CPAC 2019, where he had this weird exchange with Jerry Falwell Jr., where he was talking about, like, how delicious cows are, and he threw on that joke, and he was trying to be funny. It was just, it was just really weird and bizarre. When my boys always had guns in their hands, so you, we didn't, that, that's not something. Hashtag me too. That's not something you teach them. That's something they're born with. But as far as those cows you mentioned, I've got 100 cows. You just let Alexandria Cortez show up at my house and try to take my cows away. Yes. I, I love cows, Jerry. They're delicious. Trump Jr. has no charisma whatsoever. He's as dumb as a doorknob, but yet this dude is probably going to be president one day, unfortunately. <laughs> and I don't want to say that. Like, I want to speak that into existence. But we all know it's true. We all know that he is capable of becoming president in the United States of America. Don't pretend like that's not possible. But on the subject of cancel culture, um, you know, one individual decided to make a really valid point that nowadays cancel culture has become such an issue that you can't even incite a violent insurrection without getting canceled any longer thinking of being canceled the last six weeks the radical left their corporate allies the liberal media have tried to cancel me, censor me, expel me, shut me down, stop me from representing the people of Missouri, stop me from representing you, and guess what? I'm here today, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm not backing down. Not a chance. Not a chance. It's like we're living in North Korea. Like you can't even incite a violent insurrection without the PC mob coming after you. You can't incite a mob without the leftist mob coming after you. Like, <laughs> is is he like aware of how stupid he sounds? Is he even aware that he contradicted himself within seconds because he says, uh, you know, speaking of cancel culture, the left tried to cancel me and then he proceeds to explain how, well, even though the PC mob and, and, you know, the cancel culture goons have come after me. I haven't been canceled. So you're like disproving the uh, power of cancel culture because if you did something really bad and everyone tried to cancel you, but they didn't cancel you, aren't you kind of proving the point that cancel culture isn't actually as bad as you say it is? I just, I don't know what else to say about this. CPAC, it's not like I expect a lot of really... Um, good takes or valuable insight into the modern conservative mind each year it gets dumber and dumber and dumber and this year was basically a gigantic pro-trump circle jerk where they quite literally brought out a statue a gold statue to idolize daddy trump so you know if you watch all of these clips and you think to yourself man it seems like republicans are stupid um that's because they are this is an ideology that is intellectually and morally bankrupt, and they have no 
ideas that will actually improve society. So what do they do? They focus on owning the libs. They focus on like weird culture war bullshit that isn't actually even important, like cancel culture stuff, Mr. Potato Head. And um, they produce nothing of value. This is all just like noise. It's them being divisive. And um, it's nothing more than a circle jerk. But of course, I will not miss an opportunity to shit on them because uh, somebody's got to make fun of them. And I uh, I humbly accept that as uh, as my, my job, I guess, because... Why not? For a second, I almost forgot that the smug, elitist, limousine liberal Bill Maher existed until I saw one of the segments from his show appear in my YouTube subscriptions feed, and then I remembered, oh yeah, Bill Maher's a thing. And um, against my better judgment, I clicked, I watched it, and I wanted to just see like if his show had improved at all. And the answer is a hard no. He basically now is comparable to any typical anti-SJW YouTuber that you'd see. Like, you could tune into Tim Pool, Dave Rubin, The Quartering, and Bill Maher sounds exactly like them. At least in this segment, he did. Because he decided to talk about cancel culture. But he correctly pointed out that, you know, the right, they're really trying to weaponize this issue right now. And, um, you know use it to demonize the left. I know that Jim Jordan is calling for hearings into cancel culture, which is absolutely preposterous and a waste of time, but he's trying to say, look, I'm different than the right when they talk about this issue. So here he is trying to distinguish himself from the bad faith arguments using cancel culture that we hear from Republicans. Now, lately, Republicans have been trying to appropriate the term cancel culture to describe what happens to them when they get a just comeuppance for actual crimes. And this muddying the water is unfortunate because cancel culture is real, it's insane, and it's growing exponentially, and it's coming to a neighborhood near you. Okay, so you'd think that he's not going to do the same tired, rehashed argument that we've already heard with regard to cancel culture. Like, we've already heard the complaints, we know. So, you know, he's going to bring something new and valuable to the table. He's going to actually talk about the impact of cancel culture on normal working class Americans. I think this conversation is actually warranted. Like, how far should we go in basically letting employers fire and penalize, uh, you know, working class Americans, people who aren't celebrities because of their activity on social media. Of course, I think that racist people getting fired, like, I don't feel bad for them, but also, you know, the principle of firing someone because they have politically incorrect views, that does make, make me feel uneasy because perhaps, you know, people who I know who support BDS and don't support what the government of Israel is doing to Palestinians, you know, I wouldn't want them to be fired for, you know, their speech get penalized by their employers. So, you know, I think that this conversation is is pretty necessary to be had. But that's not really the conversation that Bill Maher has here. And he only cites one example of a man getting fired for using the white power symbol. But that's it. Like, that's the one example that he cites. He then pivots to using the same exact arguments that we've heard time and again about how, oh, well, this, like, person said something, this celebrity said something that's, like, not politically correct, so they were fired from this company. It's the same thing. It's literally indistinguishable. He doesn't offer us anything new, no unique insight into this issue here. 
Now, I, I think that there are intelligent and nuanced critiques of cancel culture. Ben Burgess literally wrote a book on this, and I haven't read it yet, but I am interested in reading that to kind of challenge my own beliefs and biases with regard to this issue in particular. But I do kind of want to empathize or sympathize rather with Bill Maher because he was canceled, for lack of a better word, back in the early 2000s. So he had a show called Politically Incorrect, and he was fired after 9-11 for saying, quote, we have been cowards lobbing cruise missiles from 2,000 miles away. That's cowardly. And then he then said this about terrorists who hijacked planes on 9-11. Staying in the airplane when it hits the building, say what you want about it. It's not cowardly. So I understand where he's coming from. He basically was fired because of the outrage mob, so I can understand how He's sensitive to this issue. He cares about this issue. Having said that, though, what he offers, though, contrary to what he promised in the beginning, is not some sort of unique left-wing or even liberal approach to cancel culture. He says the same things that Republicans say, and I'll tell you after we watch the clip why he's missing the point if he actually wanted to make a valuable point about cancel culture, why he's focusing on the wrong things. 80% of Americans, young old, rich, poor, conservative, liberal, white, minority, all hate the current atmosphere of hypersensitivity. Yeah, everybody hates it and no one stands up to it. Because it's always the safe thing to swallow what you really think and just join the mob. So if someone asks you if Justin Timberlake owes Britney Spears an apology for not being a perfect boyfriend when they were teenagers, just say yes. Easy. As Justin did, issuing an abject apology and then vowing to return sexy back to where he found it. <laughs> we find out that teenage Justin hadn't become a perfect person yet. And when asked if he had sex with the girl whose big hit was called I'm a Slave for You, said yes. What a cat. Although I truly believe any guy willing to wear matching outfits can't be all bad. Now, as for a song called I'm a Slave for You, nothing? Is this some, is this some? The Mandalorian's Gina Carano is a person I'd never heard of and resent that I have now. She's some conservative wrestling chick who kicks ass on a show I wouldn't watch if I was in prison. And she made some Nazi analogy. Who doesn't these days? You're like the Nazis is the new I don't like you. <laughs> it's always okay when Trump's the Nazi. That disqualifies her for marching around planet who gives a shit in a helmet? <laughs> By the way, you can't work in Hollywood if you don't believe what we believe. Yeah, in the 50s, that's exactly what the left complained they were being told. Now, the week before, it was Chris Harrison's turn in the barrel. He's the host of The Bachelor and is stepping away. Stepping away. <laughs> to educate himself on a more profound and productive level than ever before. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> because all my life, I've looked up to the host of the Fuck a Stranger show. And if I thought I couldn't count on The Bachelor for moral guidance, I don't know if I could go on. And of course, he's not stepping away because he's the host of a televised snake pit where 32 female contestants are trapped in the Sahardi house from hell. 
It's because he wouldn't throw one of them under the bus when it came to light that in college she attended a dress-up like we're in the old South party, which is not a type of party we should be throwing in that it winks at a civilization built on slavery, yes. But apparently in 2018, millions of people were still doing it. And mature people understand humans are continually evolving, as opposed to Wokeville, where they're always shocked we didn't emerge enlightened from the primordial ooze. <laughs> What's Chris Harrison supposed to do? Build a time machine, go back to 2018, and knock the mint juleps out of their hands? So to me, that was not necessarily persuasive at all. This isn't unique. Like, if you genuinely want to approach the issue of cancel culture from a different perspective and not the traditional conservative perspective, why wouldn't you bring up how Colin Kaepernick was blacklisted from the NFL for kneeling during the national anthem? Why wouldn't you bring up how CNN contributor Mark Lamont Hill or The Guardian columnist Nathan J. Robinson were fired because they criticized the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians? Why wouldn't you bring up how an elementary school teacher in Texas was fired because she refused to sign a pro-Israel oath? Why wouldn't you bring up how LGBTQ youth are more likely to be bullied than their straight and cisgender counterparts? I mean, is this not them being canceled? Does cancel culture not apply at a younger age? I mean, these are genuinely terrible instances of cancel culture that uh, I think should be addressed and called out if we want to even use the words cancel culture. I, I think that it's been hijacked by the right and there should be a different term for that now and I don't want to use their language and be a useful idiot for them unwittingly. But I mean, what he's bringing up here, these are just boring celebrity scandals and that's not anything that's new. Like what he's saying is not unique is not unique at all i mean look at the story that he brings up with uh justin timberlake and britney spears um he basically makes it seem as if it's bad that justin timberlake apologized to britney spears after all these years but is that really that big of a deal is that really an issue of cancel culture is justin timberlake now canceled and ostracized and marginalized from society no he's still a multi-millionaire I mean, is it really a bad thing? Do we really want to not normalize people reflecting on their past bad behavior? Like for me, when I think back to the way that I treated my classmates, even in middle school, I cringe and I wish that I could talk to those children today and apologize for the way that I treated them. Am I canceling myself? No, I think that if you want to grow as a society, it's important to look back so that way we don't repeat our mistakes in the future. And really, the broader point that was made in that New York Times documentary about Britney Spears, which was fantastic, by the way, it went right over his head because the broader point was about how the misogynistic media was hypocritical because on one hand, they'd over-sexualize and objectify women at young ages like Britney Spears, but simultaneously, they jump at the first opportunity to demonize and blame these women, label them as sluts and sexual deviants for breaking the hearts of innocent teen heartthrobs. Like, this is a double standard. Men are treated differently than women. They were and they are now. And I think that reflecting on this is important. In fact, I'd say that self-reflection is necessary because if we don't look back to the past and think about the bad things that we've done, we'd never be able to progress as a society. Like imagine if debate surrounding the treatment of uh, LGBTQ people was just like dismissed and trivialized as cancel culture. Well, we can't look back and think about the way that we treated uh, gays or blacks because that's just cancel culture. I mean, it's really important to look back and learn from our mistakes. Otherwise, we'd never progress. And that doesn't just apply to social issues. That applies 
to all types of issues, economic issues, foreign policy issues. If we never looked back at our foreign policy mistakes, we'd never be able to correct our mistakes uh, now or not make those mistakes in the future. But would it be cancel culture to look back at the Iraq war and think, man, that was a really bad decision. George W. Bush was literally lying to all of us by trying to gin up support for a war when there was no evidence of weapons of mass destruction. Like, is it cancel culture to want to cancel George W. Bush? Furthermore, are there not like genuine instances where we should cancel people? I think that George W. Bush, a war criminal, should be canceled. Bill Maher didn't address Andrew Cuomo, who has three sexual harassment allegations against him. Is it not bad to cancel powerful people who abuse their positions of power? Would it not be bad to cancel someone like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby? Like, if we're talking about cancel culture, I think that it's it's perfectly reasonable to discuss the parameters. Like, who do we apply cancel culture to and what should the ramifications be? But when we're talking about celebrities, I don't care about celebrities. They're rich, they're powerful, and I hate to say it, but nine times out of ten when celebrities are canceled, they're not actually canceled. In fact, they usually have more opportunities presented to them. They get book deals. They then get to go on social media and talk about how they were canceled. Hell, Kevin Sorbo, he went on Fox News last week because his Facebook page was deleted because he was spreading misinformation about COVID-19, and he was claiming that he's canceled now. So, like, it's lucrative to claim that you've been canceled. Victimization pays. That's why a lot of people do it. And he also brings up Gina Carino from The Mandalorian because she was fired from Disney for making insensitive social media posts. But what's weird to me is that, like, he's talking about cancel culture. His message, presumably, is specifically to anti-SJWs, but yet he's conflating what Disney, a private multi-million dollar company, did to something that society does. So who actually is guilty when it comes to canceling? Is it these private companies? Is it Hasbro for canceling Mr. Potato Head by taking the Mr. off of it and making him gender neutral? Is Disney responsible for canceling Gina Carino? Or is society the ones who need to change here? Because I don't know who you're talking to. You start by talking to the SJWs, who we named specifically, but then you cite examples where a company like Disney fired one of their employees. Like if a worker a normal worker at Walmart made the same posts that she made on social media and was fired, I think that that is bad. We shouldn't fire people and make them lose their livelihood because they say stupid things. But if a multi-millionaire celebrity does it, I'm sorry, I don't have as much sympathy. You could say in principle it's still wrong, but I don't have sympathy because she's going to be okay. In fact, now she is a martyr for the right. Ben Shapiro is now making a movie with her. So, I mean, the question is, when we're talking about celebrities, like, are they ever really truly canceled? You could say Harvey Weinstein was actually canceled, but isn't that a good thing? And see, this is the problem. Like, if you're talking about cancel culture as it relates to normal Americans, working Americans, that's a different story. Because if they lose their jobs, that actually does lead to them getting canceled, for lack of a better word, because they then lose their livelihoods. But when a celebrity gets canceled, they're still millionaires. They're still powerful. They still get other gigs. He also brings up The Bachelor host, who defended a contestant's racism. Now, again, at the beginning of the segment, he talked about how Republicans are weaponizing this issue. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But then he goes on to use the same exact arguments that Republicans use. Here's the thing. There's always going to be talks of political correctness and has it gone too far you know are we being a little bit too rigorous in the way that we hold people accountable or too extreme in the way we hold people accountable rather um and this is always 
going to be part of political discourse. It's how society grows. And he said it himself, like as human beings, we're constantly growing and learning. And mature people understand humans are continually evolving. So if that's true, which he's right there, wouldn't you argue that this is all part of the process? Sure, you can say that people get a little bit hasty and canceling sometimes. But I mean, this is all part of the process. I don't think it's inherently bad to look back and say, hey, maybe the media mistreated Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake didn't behave appropriately. Maybe he should apologize to her. Like, is this really a bad thing? Aren't there better issues that you could focus on if you genuinely care about cancel culture this much? And again, I understand why Bill Maher, from his position, cares about cancel culture. But at the same time, I also don't really care that much about him because even though he was canceled, he wasn't canceled in the traditional sense because his show was canceled, but he has a new show on HBO. He is a multimillionaire. So to me, my response usually is cry me a river. I don't care about celebrities who get canceled. This is gossip. This is tabloid bullshit. This isn't actually substantive. It doesn't actually further political discourse. But what Bill Maher does here is he makes the Republican Party's argument for them, who are trying to prop up cancel culture as a serious issue when in actuality they don't really care about cancel culture. They're trying to cancel people. They're trying to cancel leftists. Why doesn't Bill Maher or Republicans speak out against all of the leftist speakers who are disinvited and banned from college campuses? Why hasn't anyone defended Noam Chomsky, who's been blacklisted by mainstream media for over a decade now, probably? Why aren't we actually talking about the real instances of cancel culture where we cancel intellectuals and people who actually are insightful and challenge the status quo? We don't do that. We don't actually defend the people who are canceled, who challenge, who challenge power. We defend the people, and when I say we, I mean anti-SJW YouTubers and Bill Maher, to be clear. Uh, you know, they don't actually defend the people who are canceled, who challenge the status quo, who challenge the powers that be. But when it comes to, you know, celebrities who get fired from their job at Disney, that's when they're willing to, you know, speak up and sound the alarm. It's just, I would take you more seriously, one, if you were consistent here, and spoke to other examples, like examples of people like, uh, you know, Nathan J. Robinson, Mark Lamont Hill, elementary teachers not signing, you know, pro-Israel loyalty pledges. I would be more inclined to take you seriously if you focused on that and not like celebrity gossip issues as it relates to cancel culture. So I'll leave that there. Bill Maher is uh, now basically an anti-SJW YouTuber, and he did post this video to YouTube, so... uh. Welcome to the club, buddy. Um, you can get your video taken down or demonetized, and then you could start a Patreon, and you can make the Dave Rubin bucks, although you're already making that. So I don't even know why you're on this. It's not a grift. Maybe you're just, like, misled genuinely. Either way, uh, Bill Maher, still not watchable in 2021. Shocker. Well, it appears as if Joe Biden's pick to lead the OMB, Neera Tanden, has formally withdrawn her nomination. In a letter to Joe Biden, she states, Unfortunately, it now seems clear that there is no path forward to gain confirmation, and I do not want continued consideration of my nomination to be a distraction from your other priorities. Neera Tanden just went down. Yeah. <laughs>
Senator Elizabeth Warren has introduced the Ultra Millionaire Tax Act, which is basically a wealth tax that would, quote, levy a 2% annual tax on the net worth of households and trusts between $50 million and $1 billion, as well as a 1% annual surtax on assets above $1 billion for a 3% tax overall on billionaires. Now, the bill doesn't necessarily have that much support as of yet, and I don't really expect it to get that much support legislatively, although Bernie Sanders is a co-sponsor of this legislation, and in the House, Pramila Jayapal and Brendan Boyle have introduced a companion piece to this legislation. But even though what we're talking about is just a 2% wealth tax effectively, uh, this is apparently super controversial. Senator, what do you make, though, of the idea that people believe, some people believe, this would be considered confiscatory, but perhaps more importantly, that that oftentimes these are, quote unquote, unrealized gains. We've seen remarkable gains in the stock market this year, but who knows what's going to happen next year? We've seen uh, Bitcoin millionaires and billionaires get made. But of course, we, we, it's, it's a very volatile um, asset, if it's an asset at all. You know. Andrew, I hope you're embarrassed to ask if two cents is confiscatory. Um, you know, this is two cents. So it gives me absolutely no pleasure to say this, but Elizabeth Warren is absolutely right here. And I don't even want to talk about this because I don't want to give her credit, but she's correct. Um, to say that this is confiscatory is I mean, I don't know how else to put it. You should be embarrassed to ask that question. Is it not confiscatory to exploit the labor of your workers, get rich off of their hard work, and then buy yourself mansions and yachts and Lamborghinis? How are you not asking that question? I'll tell you why. Because CNBC is a network for elites. That's all it is. So that question is absolutely horseshit. And again, like she's right to say this isn't necessarily that large of a tax, it's 2%. So what does this look like in practice? Well, Joseph Choi of The Hill actually crunched the numbers, and he finds that would mean Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, the richest person in the world, would face an additional $5.4 billion in taxes if the bill were signed into law this year, according to Bloomberg News. Tesla CEO Elon Musk would pay an additional $5.2 billion, Bill Gates would pay $4 billion more, and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg would see his tax bill increased by about $3 billion. So in total, drumroll please, that would mean that this legislation, if it were signed into law, would cost the top 100 richest elites in America a combined $78 billion. That's it. So Elizabeth Warren is correct. 2% on every dollar is not much to ask. And that's specifically the problem. This isn't good enough. First of all, it's not going to pass. So basically what this is, is symbolism. So assuming this even gets a hearing, why not opt for Bernie Sanders 10% wealth tax from his 2020 campaign platform? Because what's going to happen is if this is actually genuinely discussed and debated on, uh, you're not going to get the 2% that you're asking for. So if it gets watered down, wouldn't you rather it be watered down from 10% to 2% rather than like 2% to 0.5%, it doesn't go far enough. $78 billion is barely enough to fund, you know, uh, tuition-free public colleges.
So, um, if this isn't going to pass, and this is basically political theater, which can be beneficial, why not, like, go bigger here? Why not ask for more? And I know what you're thinking, Mike, I mean, what do you want to do? Bleed these billionaires dry? Yes, that's exactly what I want to do. Because we only talk about bleeding them dry or, you know, um, whether or not we're being too mean when we're actually referring to elites. Because again, we live in a late stage capitalist society. So when workers get paid crumbs and barely have enough to survive, when Walmart schedules their employees just below full time so they don't actually have to provide them by law with healthcare benefits, nobody talks about how, wow, Maybe that's a little bit too mean. Maybe that's a little bit too severe. But when we're talking about taxing billionaires 2% on their wealth, well, all of a sudden, that's terrible. We see billionaires like Leon Cooperman literally cry on national television and make it seem as if we're trying to, you know, be too punitive towards elites. But we should be punitive to them. You don't become a billionaire in the United States of America unless you fucked over thousands and thousands of your employees. So Elizabeth Warren is right to introduce the wealth tax, but this is too meager. It's not good enough. A 2% wealth tax is not going to have the transformative change that we actually need in this country. It's not going to solve the issue of income and wealth inequality in this country. It's just not enough. And when it's not even going to pass, why not ask for more? Furthermore, like if she actually believed in this, I'm sorry, I've got to bring it up again. Uh, why would you shiv the presidential candidate that actually supported a more comprehensive, more robust wealth tax than this? Why not support? Why didn't you support him during the primaries? You were silent and effectively helped Joe Biden win. So it's really hard for me to take Elizabeth Warren seriously when she comes up with anything. Like, I am more than willing to put aside my biases and give her credit where it's due. But when it comes to bills like this, it's good. You know, she makes a solid point, and I'm glad that in that interview with CNBC, she held her ground. But it needs to be more than this. This isn't the type of legislation that it's, that's actually going to make a difference. Like, $78 billion among 100 combined elites in America, that's, that's just not... That's laughable. I'm sorry. That's not enough. Billionaires should not exist. And if this is something that we want to make a reality, so that way nobody has more than a billion dollars in net worth, you've got to shoot higher than 2% because that's just, that's not enough. I'm sorry. So the Republican governor of Texas seems to think that the pandemic is now over because he made this announcement. So today... I'm issuing a new executive order that rescinds most of the earlier executive orders. Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. That includes any type of entity in Texas. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate. Well, I mean, cases are down, so that means that we no longer have to wear masks, we no longer need to uh, social distance. Let's just pretend as if it's already over because cases and deaths are down. Yes, cases and deaths are down, and that is a really positive sign. But the pandemic is not over yet. And that right there is precisely how you extend the length of the pandemic. This isn't just about Texas. 
because Texans may see a surge in cases as a direct result of this action, and then they'll travel to other states, and other Americans will get infected, who will then travel internationally and infect other human beings. This affects the entire human population in a negative way. So thanks, asshole. You are perpetuating the extension of the pandemic. Good job. But, you know, the bar is so low that it's hard to be that hard on Greg Abbott because at least he had a mask mandate in place. There are some governors, like Ron DeSantis, who never instituted a statewide mask mandate and even blocked local governments from enacting their own mask mandates. So at least Greg Abbott, for a period of time, kind of took COVID-19 seriously. I mean, of course, he's easing restrictions far too soon, but at least there was a time where he pretended to care, whereas other governors, they never took it seriously. They're still not taking it seriously in 2021. Um, but this is a bad decision. If you truly are pro-life, as Republicans claim to be, then now is not the time to ease up our foot on the gas pedal, because the CDC just warned that new COVID variants could pose a real threat to vaccine progress. And this could even lead to a fourth surge as the highly contagious UK variant is now said to become the dominant strain in the United States this month. Now, furthermore, vaccines won't even be fully available to the general public until May. And this is according to the Biden administration. So let's assume that Biden is correct here. That means that most Americans, assuming most Americans actually want to get the vaccine, they won't be fully immunized until June. Because if they're available, let's assume on May 1st, then that means that you get your first dose and then you wait 21 to 28 days to get your second dose, depending on if you've taken the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. And then it takes seven to 14 days after your second dose to be fully immunized. So we can't even begin to think about most of the population being fully immunized until June, again, assuming that most Americans take the vaccine. But new variants means that we still have to continue to take this virus very seriously because it is a threat. We don't know about these new variants. We're still learning about COVID-19 itself, the original strain. So there's a lot more that needs to be done. There's still work to do. So we can't just like prematurely declare the virus over and the pandemic over and get back to normal because that is exactly how you extend the length of the pandemic. If we all just took it seriously, if like from the beginning we paid people to stay home, then the pandemic wouldn't have gone as bad. But because we are incapable of taking it seriously, because our capitalist economy requires that we continue to send people to work, even if it's a risk to their own health, well, this is what we have to deal with. This is what global capitalism has led to. We're not paying people to stay home. And um, as a result, people don't want to stay home because their livelihoods depend on them working. And furthermore, you know, um, the minute we see cases drop, you know, Republican governors and even Democratic governors just choose to not take it seriously. It's just, it's very frustrating because if we ever truly want to move past COVID-19, we have to get our shit together and stop being fucking stupid when it comes to this virus. But that's not going to happen. So um, we can expect COVID-19 for years to come, potentially, if this is the way that governors respond to declining numbers. Again, I don't want to downplay the significance of declining numbers in new cases and deaths. That's all really good. But that doesn't mean that we just suddenly declare the pandemic over because it's not over. And if we actually want it to be over in a real way, to actually not be a pandemic anymore, we need to be smart. And this right here, what the governor of Texas is doing, 
is not smart. It is absolutely reckless. So this may come as a surprise to some of you, but the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has found himself in yet another scandal. I know, him, of all people, he's so ethical. Uh, no, this time, he apparently decided that his uh, campaign contributors and more wealthy Floridians should be able to jump the line when it comes to COVID vaccinations. Yeah. So as CNN's Rosa Flores and Sarah Weisfeld reports, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is facing bipartisan criticism and a call for a federal investigation after the state set up invitation-only COVID-19 vaccination clinics in at least two upscale communities. One prominent developer in two communities donated to DeSantis's campaign in amounts of $25,000 and $50,000 between 2018 and 2019 for a total of $125,000, according to campaign finance records. The exclusive vaccine clinics allowed about 6,000 people to jump ahead of tens of thousands of seniors on wait lists in Manatee and Charlotte counties, where the drives happened. DeSantis has been fending off criticism about the pop-up sites, even threatening to move a clinic that his state set up in an affluent, mostly white community in Manatee County after he was confronted with allegations of political favoritism. Vanessa Baugh, chair of the board county commissioners of Manatee County, revealed the origins of the vaccine drive at the Lakewood Ranch community after her emails obtained by CNN and other media outlets through an information request showed Baugh asked county workers to pull a list of potential vaccine recipients from only two zip codes who would then participate in a state-sponsored vaccine drive. Baugh said at a public county commissioner's meeting that DeSantis called Rex Jensen, the CEO of the parent company of the Lakewood Ranch community, about setting up a vaccine drive and that Jensen called her for help setting up the drive. A news release on the Manatee County website says it aimed to vaccinate vaccinate 3,000 people over three days. So their excuse basically is, look, it's not what it looks like. We promise you. It's not like we were trying to specifically allow our campaign contributors and rich friends jump the line. Uh, we just set up the uh, vaccination sites in these two particular areas because these were the only areas that were able to accommodate large vaccine sites, you see? So it's not, <laughs> it's not exactly what it looks like. Um, okay, let's assume that that's true. Uh, they also should probably speak to this. Quote, Kingsgate and Grand Palm have something else in common. They were developed by one of DeSantis's donors, Patrick Neal, a real estate developer and former Florida lawmaker. Oh, so the plot thickens even further, in other words. Now, um, to give you some more details about these communities, Kingsgate is a 55-plus gated community, and uh, Grand Palm was described in the article as a resort-style community. Not shocking at all. So, what DeSantis is saying to defend himself now is that it's not just rich white people getting vaccinated because half of the vaccines went to seniors in Broward and uh, Palm Beach counties, except that's not really the point that people are making. When there's a limited supply and you choose deliberately to distribute additional vaccine doses, not based on, you know, need, not based on whether or not somebody is old or immunocompromised, based on people who contributed to your campaign in more affluent, wealthy areas of Florida, that's the issue. Because what you're kind of saying is that these lives of rich, powerful political elites and political allies are actually more important than non-elite people. The peasants, their lives matter less than these individuals in these zip codes who we chose to allow to jump the line so they could be protected first. That's what 
the issue is here. And I think this is pretty obvious. Anything that he's saying is nothing more than obfuscation. I mean, Ron DeSantis is a Trumpian Republican. He has been involved in multiple scandals again and again. And you'd think that one scandal, I mean, theoretically, it should ultimately tank his career. But the outcome of scandals in the post-Trump era is very comparable to scandals in the Trump era. Scandals only embolden corrupt politicians. It's just further proof that the liberals are against them and they're looking for any excuse to try to penalize them. It's not actually that they're genuinely corrupt. It's that, you know, this is just evidence that, you know, the Democratic Party, they're engaged in witch, witch hunts. But the issue here is that there is bipartisan criticism here. Um, but of course, Ron DeSantis is disingenuous. He's not going to address that. He is just basically trying to lie. But uh, let's be clear here. This is exactly what it looks like, because in the United States of America, a late stage capitalist society... We absolutely value the lives of elites more so than the lives of the peasants. And Ron DeSantis is just putting that into practice in a really explicit way. And he was hoping that nobody would pay attention to this. But unfortunately for him, that's not the case. So I think that the details of this story speak for itself. Ron DeSantis wanted people who were his political allies, who contributed to his campaign and helped him get elected, get the vaccine first before people who he viewed were less important. Not surprising at all if you know anything about Ron DeSantis. CNN's Allison Camarota usually does panels featuring voters. She kind of like picks their brains about who they're thinking of supporting and why they're supporting said candidates. And I usually find these fascinating. This time she did a panel featuring former QAnon members and individuals who know a loved one who became a QAnon supporter. And I am really excited to watch this. Um, I haven't seen much of this yet, but um, let's, uh, let's see what she has in store for us. In the aftermath of the attack on the US Capitol on January 6th, investigators are trying to figure out what happened and how they missed the signs. But one group of Americans did not miss the signs. They saw it coming and they see another violent battle brewing today. You're about to meet a group of three former QAnon followers and three people whose loved ones are still in the grip of QAnon's conspiracy theories. All of them tell us that the next alarming date comes this week, Thursday, March 4th, to be exact. QAnon has a new plan for violence and destruction, and they don't let reality get in their way. Does anybody understand what is supposed to be happening on March 4th? Um... Well, so March 4th, they're thinking that Donald Trump is going to come back and he's going to be the president. Um, apparently, what they said is way back when, it was like 1871, um, Inauguration Day used to happen on March 4th, and then Donald Trump will be back and he'll be inaugurated as either the 19th president of the United States Republic or the first president of some new something. They also... Okay. I heard about the March 4th date and that that was supposed to be the day, according to people who are still adhering to this conspiracy theory, that Trump was supposed to come back. I didn't know, like, how far-reaching it was. Like, I, I wish that we can get, like, a sample of how many people, like, the percentage of QAnon supporters that were in QAnon are still in QAnon, you know, now that Biden is president. Like, I would love to know. I don't think there's really any meaningful way that you can quantify this. I don't know that people would want to come out as pro-QAnon, um, or all of them would. 
Um, that's really interesting. As many of you are noticing, it is uh, March 4th, and uh, that has not happened. So now what's going to happen? Um, is the next day going to be some other time when Trump is supposed to assume power or create some new republic? So many questions. I think that there's going to be this great financial reset, both in our country and around the world, where debts are just going to be forgiven, where if you have a mortgage, you don't owe on it anymore. It's just so ludicrous, <laughs> you know, to put it bluntly. I mean, like, OK, I, I have to address what she said. Like, this is ruining people's lives. Like, the lie that this new economic system or whatever that Trump is going to unilaterally install, it's going to forgive mortgages and debts. This is leading to people not paying their mortgages, defaulting on their debts. Now, I don't know how widespread this issue is within the QAnon community, but it's happening. And it is ruining lives. This is serious like this is no longer something to uh look at and and laugh at like this is no longer some like hyper online phenomenon like this is really ruining people's lives and it's it's terribly sad and i just like i want to ask these folks donald trump is a republican what makes you think that he would support any economic system or any institutions that would allow for the cancellation of mortgages and, and debt like he could have done that while he was president I have still have family members that don't even believe that Joe Biden is president. Charlotte, is it true wow. that one of your sisters does not today believe that Joe Biden is president? Yes, she she now she she wow. tells her daughter that she thinks that uh, the White House is a sex. Gonna, uh, and no, 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 no. I'm going to pause it. I'm going to pause it, and I'm going to guess. Uh, I'm going to say that. Uh, Actually, Donald Trump is the president, but she thinks that Donald Trump is wearing Joe Biden's skin over his face to, to pretend to be Joe Biden. But it's actually Donald Trump or Donald Trump shrunk himself and is like controlling Joe Biden. Um, like that's got to I, I don't know how you can think Trump is the president or Biden isn't the president. Like it's so it's scary how detached from reality they are. Like, that is genuinely horrifying to me. That Biden isn't actually president. Wow. Yes. Wow. Wait, <laughs> did I miss it? What, what's the reason? A set and that Biden isn't, she thinks that uh, the White House is a set and a set. that Biden isn't actually president. Wow. I need yeah. more details about this. This <laughs> is mind-boggling. Well, the person that I started talking to anyways that had initially got me into QAnon, he was like, you know, Joe Biden's not even real. Like, that's why he's wearing a mask all the time because oh, well. the the fake oh, wow. face that he's wearing, um, the mouth what? doesn't move correctly when he talks. What? Yeah, so they really believe I did not know it got this, like, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That he's not real. So, like, is he, is he an android? Like, what? The conspiracy has got to be that he's an android. Like, QAnon is kind of like, it's an umbrella theory of a lot of other conspiracy theories. Like, it's not just about Q anymore. Like, it has expanded into something entirely different. Like, this virus of Q has mutated, and now it's this entirely different beast that Joe Biden is, it's not even Joe Biden. Okay, so for those of you on the top row who did for a while fall into QAnon, did you on the top row, understand who was- That is QAnon Karen, the individual who, who destroyed was? 
the uh, mask display at Target. Just Jay, FYI. Did you understand who was feeding this information and like who the ringleader of it was? No. I didn't know that I was in a QAnon group until I got out of it. Like I had no idea that the information I got was QAnon information. So do you guys think that there are particular media types, media personalities who also are a gateway to conspiracy theories and, and QAnon? Uh, well, <laughs> um, Newsmax, which is um, a TV station, definitely. They're just they their reportings are really off the wall. I can remember when Glenn Beck joined Fox News was when my mom became very susceptible to conspiracy theories. She hung on his every word. Um, and then in the more recent years, it's been people like Tucker Carlson. Definitely stuff like Fox News. Tucker Carlson. Oh, and who doesn't like know is, what Q is. Or claims he can't find evidence that Q is a thing. You know, I found myself, you know, eliminating 98% of, of media so I could exclusively watch, you know, Fox News. And they tell you, don't go anywhere else. Keep your attention here. You know, if you go to any of these other stations, it's fake news. And that is a huge part of what's radicalizing people. These news companies like OAN, Fox News, Newsmax, these aren't news outlets. These are businesses that operate under the facade that they are news, but really what they care about is the bottom line. And so if they think it's more lucrative and um, it's going to increase profits to drive people into, into QAnon, they don't care if that affects their legitimacy in a negative way. They just want to increase revenue, which means you do what you can to you know increase clicks um, and, and, and eyeballs to the television screen. This is dark. We are in the darkest timeline. In my Telegram chats and in my groups, the only like outside media sources of getting information other than the group that they ever said we could, I guess, trust would have been Newsmax or there's Right Side Broadcasting Network. Um, I don't know if they're actually on TV. I know that they're on YouTube. Show of hands, how many of you today think that we do have a domestic terrorism and or white supremacy problem in this country? All of you. Just everything happened with Trump and, you know, just his view on the whole thing. And it just really, you know, ignite that fire of white supremacy and racism. My concern is that a lot of the, the threads that weave a lot of these conspiracies together in the Q world are very thinly veiled white supremacy, very thinly veiled anti-Semitism. When I was in these groups, I was like, no, we're not racist. Like, you know, I'm not sneaking out on Wednesday nights to KKK meetings. Like, so I thought I wasn't racist. Um, being out of it, I have taken it upon myself to have conversations and I've bought books and I'm reading and I'm learning. But as far as domestic terrorism, I think QAnon is a domestic terrorist group. Just seeing what some of the people say. Uh, there's a lot of anger and a lot of confusion. I think it's going to get worse. I worry about a lot of violence. The conversation that's been that's said pretty in chilling. Groups is when March 4th happens, if Trump isn't back, they need to start planning. Um, and they will switch how they talk and communicate, whether it's online or over the phone. They're going to switch the meaning of their words so nobody can pick up and flag it. I have already noted. That's not new, by the way. Um, fascists nowadays 
have to do that. This is something that Nazis have been doing forever. So they're now replicating the tactics that we've seen of, of fascists. Picked up on that. Do you have any examples of that? Speaking of a certain group of um, people that they consider less desirable, they will use the term Canadians. So they, they don't like a particular demographic here in America. Yes. And they refer to them yes. as Canadians. Yes. And is this a particular racial group? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can I add to that? Yes. You, you have just this huge group of people that, that feel that their country is in danger. Their children are in danger. Um, their freedom is in danger. And so they feel like they have to go to war and they have to fight to get things back right. I think the biggest that's thing, horrifying, you know, that we're looking at, you know, because if they genuinely believe that, like, there is a threat that they have to address, then they will respond in a way that they believe is proportional. That's why we saw, you know, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of them storm the Capitol because they believed that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. They believed that um, inaction wasn't an option because democracy was at stake. Now, ask yourself this. If it were actually the case that an election were stolen, a national election were stolen, was stolen, uh, wouldn't you think that that would be a justifiable way to save democracy, storm the Capitol, and stop the coup from taking place? So that's what they were doing. They were responding in a way that they believed uh, was to save democracy. In actuality, they were doing what was an attempted coup. They were the ones who were attacking democracy, but that's not the way that they perceived their actions. Especially coming out of the Capitol riots on January 6th, is that people are emboldened to take matters into their own hands. I'm trying to warn everybody of what I see that's going to come. And if this group cannot be stopped, and when March 4th comes and goes, we're going to be hoping and praying that they push another date out there. Because if not, the insurrection is going to be a drop in the bucket compared to what's ha going to happen. I have to say, that's, that's the... Wow. So there's another video that we're going to get to, but I've just got to comment on that. Like, this individual, she's absolutely convinced that there's going to be more violence and that these dates kind of keep them at bay. It gives them something to look forward to. It's a distraction, if you will. But without these dates, without something to keep them going... She is pretty confident that they're going to resort to more violence. That is worse than the Capitol. I, I just don't know because what do we do in this situation? You know, in theory, the QAnon conspiracy theory should be over. Biden is in power. What Q said did not happen. So, you know, if you're thinking logically, you would put two and two together, connect the dots and realize, okay, I'm being duped here. I'm being fooled. But the thing about these sorts of, of conspiracy theories and cults, which this has, I think, evolved into a cult, is that you don't think logically. You don't think using uh, facts and reason. You think using emotions. And so this is an emotional thing. Their actions and beliefs are driven by their emotions. They believe that they're, you know, they're in, in danger, that, you know, um, uh, Joe Biden is a threat to their families. 
And I don't know what way they believe he's a threat. Like, it's not in the traditional practical sense that, oh, well, you know, he uh, may not get the stimulus out fast enough and my, fun my, my family may not eat. They may go hungry. Like, this is a different type of threat where they think that, like, Joe Biden poses some sort of, like, supernatural satanic threat in a way, I, I think is what they believe. But it's it's hard to keep up because the conspiracy theory, it keeps evolving. But let's go to the second clip here. How many of you think that the pandemic has been a gateway of sorts to QAnon? I think at first, COVID was such an unknown for everybody. And then I think that QAnon rushed in and filled that vacuum with misinformation and disinformation, filling that void again about fear of foreigners. It's the, the so-called China virus. It's this. It's, it's uh, anything that people can seize upon that plays upon their fears that are already inherent and that's really what, what she's saying is totally correct by the way because when there's a lot of uncertainties and unknowns that drives fear and desperation and when somebody comes along and gives you answers even if it's the incorrect answers if you can get any sort of comfort from those answers whatsoever you might be inclined to take it up so if QAnon is saying here's the answers to the questions you're, you're asking, then people can become radicalized by that. Everything she's saying here is absolutely correct and spot on. It came down to was this overwhelming feeling that came up for me during the pandemic was that I did not think that I was going to be okay. I, I just you know, had no grasp on reality and what was going on. And I felt like I was on quicksand. So, Bree, your parents are down the QAnon rabbit hole. So do you know how they fell into it? I think last year with the pressure of the election and seeing how Trump was falling in the polls during the COVID, the COVID pandemic control, um, I think that was what pushed them to get really into QAnon. Um, I think they were kind of panicking. They were nervous. If you're afraid of vaccines or if you're afraid of 5G or if you're afraid of other countries, I mean, whatever it is that you, um, I guess, have a natural fear of or a suspicion of, uh, Q has a, a version of itself for you. And I think that that's very that's true. Crazy. I think that whatever your specific fear is, you mm -hmm. can find essentially what is like a choose your own adventure down a doomsday rabbit hole of whatever you are most afraid of well that's why that right there specifically is why this conspiracy theory is so powerful why it's roped in so many seemingly normal people who might not even be like predisposed to think conspiratorially because it has so many components like it's not just hey q says this q says that there's this like secret uh pedophile sex ring involving democrats and hollywood elites like it, it's beyond that now it's grown and it's just unfathomable like the reach that this conspiracy theory has is, is so large now and the impact that it has the uh toll that it's taken on people like this girl's parents are involved in QAnon. like i look to my parents for guidance and and, and uh, you know advice but to think that like they were taken by this conspiracy theory and i use the word taken deliberately like it's sad. Like, this is ruining people's lives. And it's just, it is deeply depressing to see this. And we have to try to grapple with the reality of this phenomenon to try to save people. Because this is hurting them. This is hurting their families. Definitely. I related to the pandemic um, kind of bringing people into QAnon.
it made it easier because you were cut off from everybody. You know, you're just stuck at home all the time. Um, and all you're doing is if you're not, yeah. And if you're not watching Netflix, you know, you can only watch that so many times. (laughs) So (laughs) then you start, you're on social media a whole lot more. Serious question. Like how many people were saved from falling into QAnon by Animal Crossing? Like I'm asking earnestly, I feel like that was like the best distraction at the beginning of the pandemic, but, uh, I digress. So let's get back to it. Um, and I think, I mean, that's, I think that's where a lot of people got in. Jordan, tell us who in your life is currently in the grips of QAnon. My cousin, who is a police officer in the Bay Area. Oh, that's terrifying, but not surprising. It's scary to know that somebody like that, who is a police officer, is pulling people over and giving tickets and just, you know, and so radicalized. What are the things that he says to you? He would just start posting things like radical stuff, like Antifa, you know, is responsible for the fires. This past summer we had on the West Coast in Oregon and California, you know, that Antifa dressed up as um, Trump supporters who raided the Capitol. So in other words, the way he justifies the attack on police officers, Capitol Police officers at the U.S. Capitol, is he believes it, it couldn't be his people, right? It has to be other people dressed up as Trump supporters. Exactly. It's interesting to hear how people are getting walked into it still, or, you know, after I had left. Yeah, because, Jay, you were from about 2014 to, I guess, you got out in 2019. But you got in early. Before it was even called QAnon, you were starting Correct. to flirt with, what, some of these conspiracy theories? Was it like Pizzagate back then? Yeah, some what of the conspiracy was it? theories about... No, because Pizzagate came out of the WikiLeaks in 2016. What? So QAnon isn't like the origin. Like that was a variant of some other conspiracy theory. This is fascinating to me. Um, obviously, Hillary Clinton, there was like a cabal of pedophiles... Can you just explain that one to me? The cabal of pedophiles uh, that all Democrats are apparently involved in that is somehow connected to the basement of a pizza parlor. I mean, do you understand why when you're not in QAnon, that sounds crazy? Oh, it absolutely sounds crazy. Absolutely. Why was that plausible to you? We just kind of felt a general state of confusion and paranoia in our lives, if you will. There's very little worse than a pedophile, you know? So it's just a kind of call to action. Well, I think the interesting thing about QAnon that people really need to understand is even if you are a very well-educated person, you can still fall into this because of the brainwash-like mechanism that it has because it operates exactly like a cult. What QAnon basically tells you is here's the information you know. It's no longer true. Here's why. And you are encouraged to, quote unquote, open your mind and think about it differently. So show of hands, how many of you blame the Facebook or YouTube algorithm for sucking you or your loved ones in? Well, uh, definitely Facebook. Facebook just has such a hold on yeah, my cousin and my aunt. I mean, they just believe anything that is shared. And, you know, just the disinformation. Well, me, it was TikTok. And um, so, I, you know, if you start liking 
certain type of Trump videos TikToks. or interacting with those I've videos actually, on TikTok. I thought she um, looked the familiar. I'm going to start showing you more of those things. And in there, some conspiracy theories started coming through. The thing that frustrates me the most is TikTok will have their general statement, oh, we don't allow you know, QAnon or conspiracy theories on our platform, but I can go to my For You page and I will still see conspiracy theories going out. And what is your advice for if somebody's dealing with a loved one? My advice to anyone that has family members in it is, you know, try to have some compassion or empathy um, when it deals, you know, with that, just because people in these groups, they're terrified. I think family support is the most critical thing to helping people get out of this. Um, so I just can't stress enough, you know, be patient with these people. It's been a really, really tough year for a lot of people. And put yourself in other people's shoes. You might not understand their perspective. You might not agree with their ideology, but at least you can love them and have compassion for them as a, as a person, as a human being. I think we'll end that right there. We're about done. Um, look, I think that what they're saying is correct. Um, as as easy as it is to, uh, you know, shame and laugh at a QAnon person, um, that's not necessarily what is going to penetrate their bubble. Uh, we have to try to approach them from a position of understanding. And honestly, like for me, I'm not going to be able to deconvert people. Like if you show them a humanist report video where I talk about how QAnon is bad, you know, that's not going to resonate with them. This needs to come from their loved ones, like husbands, sisters, brothers, because if you don't already have that rapport established with them, like they're not going to believe you. They're not going to believe anyone else unless they're reaffirming what they already believe. So if you want to penetrate that bubble, it has to be someone who uh, they already trust, you know, a family member or a friend. Otherwise, I can't see how anything else can get through to them. And that's even if they're willing to change, because if, if they're not going to be receptive to counter-arguments, if they don't actually want to change, and if they want to be in QAnon, then you might not be able to change their minds. It, it's tough. Like, we need to deconvert as many people as possible. I, I think that should be our mission. But the problem is that, this might, you know, be a thing that is uh, really prevalent in their lives now, but maybe a year from now, two years from now, QAnon isn't their go-to conspiracy theory anymore. Maybe it's some new conspiracy theory. It just evolves and they think, oh, well, yeah, QAnon was, was crazy, but this conspiracy, conspiracy theory, this one has legs. Because, I mean, look at this guy. He was in, like, a conspiracy theory that evolved into QAnon since 2014. Like, this is before Pizzagate. This is pre-Trump. Um, so... You know, if somebody is already thinking in that way, conspiratorial, uh, conspiratorially, and they're deep in that cult, deep in that bubble, and they're just getting their information from a Facebook group, it's going to be really hard to reach them. That doesn't necessarily mean that we don't try, but also that means that we have to be real. Some people are not going to want to come out of this. They're, they want to be involved in this. Like, it gives them comfort. Like, it's a vice for them. So I, I think we should try to learn as much as we possibly can about these conspiracy theories and try to deconvert as much people as possible. And I think that the way that we try to get through to these folks is by having loved ones approach them, trying to deconvert them, but coming from a place of understanding and love. And that's all I can say about this. I think this is fascinating, but this is something that we have to address as a society because this is ruining people's lives. And it is absolutely sad to see. Like, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see people default on 
their mortgages and become homeless because of this idiotic conspiracy theory like i want them to get the help that they need and as these people said they're they're fearful they're not like they're not doing this because they uh they're not believing this because they feel as if it's just like enlightening to them and it's interesting and entertaining like they're they're resorting to believing in this because it gives them comfort because they're scared and they're fearful well, it appears as if the Senate has reached a deal on the Biden administration's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. However, um, Joe Biden has chosen to cave all because two centrist Democrats, conservative Democrats, have chosen to deny even more relief to their constituents. Now, debate is going to be taking place on this. It's already happening as we speak, likely. And um, this is deeply frustrating. It's not just bad policy. It's also really bad politics. The optics here are just, they're terrible. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, in the face of pressure from a faction of conservative Senate Democrats, President Joe Biden reportedly agreed Wednesday to limit eligibility for direct relief payments by accelerating the phase-out of $1,400 checks proposed in the emerging $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. Under the new eligibility structure, according to the Washington Post, individuals earning $75,000 or less annually and couples earning $150,000 or less will still receive the full $1,400 payments as proposed by the relief package passed by the House last week. But under the latest framework pushed by conservative Democrats and accepted by Biden, the phase-out of the $1,400 checks will end at $80,000 for individuals and $160,000 for joint filers, meaning individuals and couples who earn more will receive nothing, not even partial payments. The House bill proposes ending the phase-out at $100,000 in yearly income for individuals and $200,000 for for couples. Among the Senate Democrats who pushed for the quicker phase-out were Senators Joe Manchin and Gene Shaheen, of course. So that's still a pretty high income threshold, right? So how many people in actuality will this affect? Well, quite a bit. Because as Jeff Stein of the Washington Post explains, this compromise will result in roughly 12 million fewer adults and 5 million fewer children receiving the benefit, with about 280 million Americans overall still remaining eligible. So what that amounts to is 17 million fewer Americans getting checks that Biden promised checks to. Now, if you don't already understand why this is bad um well it's bad because now it is literally the case that trump if he were to run against biden in 2024 he could correctly brag that he sent checks to more people than joe biden and aoc made this point in a tweet arguing conservative democrats have fought so the biden administration sends fewer and less generous relief checks than the trump administration did it's a move that makes little to no political or economic sense and targets an element of relief that is most tangibly felt by everyday people an own goal we have a responsibility to show people in this country what a democratic majority can do for working people that means more generous relief checks 15 dollars minimum wage ending the filibuster to protect our democracy it's a once in a generation shot and we need to legislate like it and she's absolutely correct and what liberals will try to do as they advocate for more means testing is they're going to say well look do you really want rich people to be getting these checks because clearly you know a couple who makes uh two hundred thousand or in this case one hundred sixty thousand dollars per year they're doing okay and yes that's correct but here's the issue 
with means testing. It takes longer and it doesn't account for changes in someone's income. So a couple who was making $160,000 the year prior may not be making that now. And so you're denying relief to them based on what may be an outdated economic situation that they find themselves in. And furthermore, if you just make these checks universal, you send them out immediately. No time needed to, you know, distinguish between people who qualify, people who are eligible. And in the event people shouldn't qualify and they make too much money, then you can just easily tax them the following year based on their income. Like, why do all the hard work now? Do it later. Just prioritize getting money in people's hands. That's the issue with means testing. So I want to recap, like, where we started and where we've gone. So it started out with Joe Biden promising $2,000 checks immediately. Then they moved the goalpost to $1,400 checks. And then they moved the goalpost again to $1,400 checks, like sometime in March, hopefully. We'll cross our fingers. And then Joe Biden said the $1,400 checks would be means tested. And now those $1,400 means tested checks have more eligibility requirements. I mean, this is such bad politics. The optics here are absolutely terrible and it's indefensible, really. Anyone who's trying to defend this, they're not serious people. I just, I don't know what to say. Like to go back on a promise that you just made, voters are not going to forget about this. They're going to remember this. They're going to remember that your word doesn't mean anything. So if Joe Biden chooses to run, run for president again, or whoever it is in 2024, if they make really bold promises, voters are going to think, oh, wait, I shouldn't take you seriously because you literally lied to us right after you got elected, right after the Georgia runoff races were over. You lied. You changed the story immediately like that. So why should I take you seriously? Why should I come out to vote for you? That's the issue here. So the point that AOC makes is absolutely sound. And if Democrats are truly wanting to keep power and not get blown out in 2022, they should listen more to people like AOC and listen less to idiots like Joe Manchin and Gene Shaheen who don't actually care about their constituents. They don't actually care about doing anything to deliver relief to the American people. If Joe Manchin had his way, he wouldn't even give out checks. So stop listening to people like Joe Manchin who are bringing the party down. If you truly want to help the American people, disregard these people or for once, Maybe fight them, make the case like Joe Biden is the president of the United States. But why does it seem like Joe Manchin is the most powerful politician in America? Like, why is it that Joe Biden caves to any and all demands issued by Joe Manchin? You're the president. Fight him. Argue. At least make the case. I mean, this is embarrassing, but it's not necessarily surprising. It's it's pretty predictable. It's just that, like, you usually don't fuck up this badly if you want to win re-election until, like, maybe at least a year into your presidency. But Joe Biden is, um, he's not up to the challenge. I've said this once. I'll say it again. He's not up to the challenge. And every single day, he proves me right. And I don't want to be proven right. I want him to prove me wrong here because I don't necessarily care about being proven right or wrong. I just want people to get the relief that they need, that you promised them.
I want to share a clip that Case Study QB posted to Twitter. Without Case Study QB, I probably wouldn't know about half of these clips that I find. So shout out to them. Definitely give them a follow. Uh, this features the uh, crying billionaire Leon Cooperman. This is the individual who literally on national television cried at the idea of the wealth tax. Mind you, the wealth tax has absolutely no chance of passing in the short-term future. But the mere idea that politicians would institute a tax on wealth brought him to tears. And this individual, uh, you can understand why it affects him personally, because he is worth an estimated $2.5 billion. So when people criticize you know, the rich and they talk about taxing the rich and eating the rich, he takes it personally. So in a new clip on CNBC, he wanted to denounce the hatred and vitriol spewed toward elites, and he says a lot of very stupid things that uh, that show why nobody should take rich people seriously. I think he's the poster boy as to why we shouldn't take anything that someone uh, this wealthy has to say uh, because they're, they're not serious. Like, the arguments that he's making aren't actually valid arguments. What we see from him, it's little more than platitudes, and even to say that is to be overly charitable. But take a look, and then we're going to destroy what he has to say. Very quickly about share buybacks. That was another issue we, we got into with Senator Warren yesterday. You have yeah, a problem with share no buybacks? Should the government yeah, restrict no them? idea what she's talking about. You know, sure, there are, buybacks should be evaluated like, as a management decision like any other capital allocation decision. You go out and you buy another company. You go out and you spend money on plant and equipment. You pay a dividend. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a decision made by management, and it has to be evaluated. You know, I learned a lot about buyback by watching Dr. Henry Singleton operate. He was a, a brilliant, brilliant executive. Okay, and he did eight self-tender offers from 1972 to 1984, retired 90% of his stock, never selling a share of his own stock. I hate buybacks where managements are buying back a lot of stock and selling into the buyback. He never sold a share of his stock. He died uh, as the second largest uh, owner of land in America next to Ted Turner. He became a multi-billionaire because of his wise decisions. Okay, he created a tremendous amount of wealth for shareholders. When the shareholders cash in their stock, they pay taxes to the government. Okay, we don't need the government. The government is not proven to be a great allocator of capital. We don't need artificial decision making. We just let the let the invisible hand of capitalism work. We have the greatest economy in the world. The, the thing that I fear most is the young people in this country are embracing socialism, not, not understanding that we have one of the most effectively working economies in the world. Okay, And we should not look to make radical changes. We could make changes around the edge. We could do a better job, no question about it. I have no problem with raising taxes. I have no uh, problem with eliminating loopholes. You know, let's, we've talked about carrying interest for a decade on this program. Nothing has been done. It should be taxed as ordinary income. Okay, it's as simple as that. We don't need a new regime. It's not wise. It will lead to un, uh, uh, economic decision making. And I think Tillman Fatia did an excellent job yesterday on one of your segments in discussing his views and explaining the problems, which I could go through, but not necessarily to repeat what he had to say because he did a very good job of, of, of disclosing it. You know, hey, I, we, hey. don't, we don't have to do it. It's just it's a soundbite. It's a soundbite. There's no reason to be hostile to wealth, whether it's AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. There's no reason to be hostile to wealth. We all have to work together to deal with our problems. All right.
As simple as that. And you got to decide whether you're a capitalist or whether you're a socialist. Socialist. Hands down. Definitely socialist. This argument is really, really terrible. He says, uh, there's no reason to be hostile towards wealth. Now, for him, of course, we can understand why he doesn't want people to be hostile towards wealth because he has a lot of wealth. But you see, the issue is it's not just that you have a lot of wealth and we're jealous. The issue is that you and your rich buddies hoard most of the wealth and you're still not satisfied. You're still trying to further rig the rules in your favor so you can increase the wealth that you already have. While the peasants have crumbs, you're trying to lobby the government for even more tax breaks. He says that he, you know, isn't against raising taxes. Well, I mean, maybe spread the word amongst your rich friends that when you continuously lobby for the tax burden to be shifted even more to the working class, that is going to absolutely drive more hatred and vitriol towards elites. And furthermore, what drives hostility, which is warranted towards elites, is when we even get a small victory or discuss the codification of a small victory with regard to workers' rights, such as the $15 an hour minimum wage, which is now in jeopardy. Immediately, all of corporate America gears up to try to lobby against it. So any progress that we make, you fight against. All of the wealth in this country, you have. You own the means of production. So we have every reason in the world to be hostile towards wealth and not just hostile towards the institutions and the system that allows for, you know, these levels of obscene wealth, but hostile towards the individuals such as Leon Cooperman, who perpetuate this system by propping it up, by arguing for this very system. And I love uh, what he said because he really shared why he's uh, chosen to uh, speak out. The thing that I fear most is that young people in this country are embracing socialism, not understanding that we have one of the most effectively working economies in the world. If that were the case, though, wouldn't these young people be more inclined to support capitalism if it benefited them in any way whatsoever? I mean, we are burdened with debt. This generation is not buying cars, not buying houses, not having uh, children in comparison with, um, you know, previous generations. Maybe if they actually were able to reap some of the rewards of capitalism, they wouldn't be as receptive to socialist arguments. But because you idiots are so fucking greedy, even giving them a little bit more than crumbs is beyond the pale. Because you've got to have it all. And you wonder why young people are taking a liking to socialism. Hmm. Maybe it's because capitalism has been a failure. Maybe because capitalism has only served people like you. And I love when he threw in the classic line of, let the invisible hand of capitalism work. The problem is that capitalism is an inherently volatile system. It doesn't work. Without intervention from the government, what now seems like every couple of decades, it doesn't work. It collapses. And he says that, like, let's just let capitalism do its thing. But the second one of his companies, whatever he does to get that wealth, the second it's convenient, he'd be begging for a government handout. He'd be begging for socialism for large multinational corporations because this is how capitalism works. The system requires management from government. Capitalists will argue that, you know, they don't need any regulation. They don't need the government to interfere. But the minute that it's convenient, the minute that they collapse, the minute Wall Street engages in reckless behavior, well, they're crying for a bailout. So functionally, what he's arguing for 
is corporate authoritarianism, where uh, large multinational corporations and their executives have the utmost freedom in this capitalist society. But the peasants have to shut the fuck up and accept their crumbs. And if you even speak out and be a little bit angry, he's going to cry. But he says, uh, we all have to work together. I love that platitude. We all have to work together. Except that's not happening. Working together would imply that in this capitalist system, uh, both the workers, the employees, and the employers have an equal seat at the table, have an equal say in the policymaking process. But that's not happening. That's why uh, we are seeing the laws being written to the benefit of these corporations and to the detriment of their workers. You see, there's a reason why policy outcomes reflect what special interests and elites want and why normal, ordinary citizens have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. This is according to a 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page. It's because we're not working together. Corporations haven't just exploited their workers, but they have corrupted democracy. So you wonder why young people aren't really liking capitalism as it stands now? Well, it's because, like, it's not working for them. So, of course, of course, they fucking hate capitalism. Who wouldn't? Leon Cooperman would fucking hate capitalism if he found himself on the opposite end of the economic spectrum. But he's on the very tippy top, so it's really easy for him to look down on the peasants from his ivory tower and denounce all of the hatred that he sees, the discrimination that he sees towards the rich. But guess what? Fuck elites like Leon Cooperman. Any hatred and vitriol towards elites and the system itself isn't just uh, deserved, but it is necessary. Because if you don't feel pressure, then that means that we're not speaking out enough. So I absolutely love to see this fucking capitalist pig squeal. Keep crying, bitch, because... We're not backing down anytime soon. You've had your heyday. The capitalists have created the dystopian society that we're all living in now. So at a minimum, you should be happy that we're just speaking out against it and not coming with our fucking pitchforks. So I want to play another clip that Case Study QB brought to my attention. Uh, this is of Joe Scarborough on MSNBC's show Morning Joe. He is talking about foreign policy as it relates to Iran. And what he says here, it should make your blood boil. Oh, let me ask, Matt, is this, uh, is it Iran? Uh, you said there's some suspicion there, but does it seem that Iran has its fingerprints all over these attacks? It just looks that way because of, I mean, there's really nobody else to focus blame on. This has been going on for a while. This really does look like tit-for-tat attacks because, remember, those, that February 26th attack that the Biden administration did along the border between Iraq and Syria, that itself was retaliation for a previous attack by rockets that went against a U.S.-backed base in Iraqi Kurdistan, in the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, in Erbil, near the international airport there. So this really does just look like yet another tit-for-tat attack. And so that's why this is going to be another, you know, we're talking about the Pope. This is also going to be really complicated for the Biden administration's stated desire to reinstate that nuclear deal with Iran, the JCPOA, the one that the Obama administration signed in 2015. And of course, Joe Biden himself had a lot to do with that. And that the Trump administration then walked away from in 2018. If these tit-for-tat attacks keep going on, if the Biden administration retaliates, 
we could see any effort to try to return to that nuclear deal become really, really complicated. All right, NBC's Matt Bradley, thank you so much. You know, Willie, uh, as long as the Iranians are trying to kill Americans and trying to kill American contractors and they're killing American contractors, we need to respond, my opinion, not yours. But I'll, also, the last thing I'd be worried about is going back and sitting down the, with the Iranians and doing anything, because this country has been the epicenter of terrorism since 1979. And they keep trying to kill American troops and they keep trying to kill American contractors. Yeah. I, I think it's OK for us to take that personally and say we're not going to sit down with terrorists while this continues. So I don't have much to say about this because I think that the clip speaks for itself. But he is quite literally on national television advocating for war with Iran, not only for more strikes with Iran to go tit for tat with them, but he takes it a step further and says we should not rejoin the JCPOA. The Iran nuclear deal, which is effectively a peace agreement that the United States chose to unilaterally withdraw from. He's saying Joe Biden shouldn't just not even entertain re-entering that agreement with Iran, but we should continue to escalate. This is absolutely absurd but it's totally predictable i mean this is the network that told us that the uh weapons of war were beautiful i think that it was uh brian williams who said that when trump bombed syria and now when biden bombed syria they're basically applauding him yay more bombs please good job sir we appreciate it we know that you haven't gotten out those 1400 stimulus checks even though you promised 2000 but i'm so glad that you're choosing to prioritize bombing syria first thank you so much the american people definitely appreciate this now assuming joe scarborough were an actual journalist who cared here's a question that he might want to ask why the fuck are we in iraq to begin with what are we doing in iraq you see there wouldn't be this tit for tat if we weren't in Iraq. Are we just supposed to like stay in Iraq forever? Is it gonna become the 51st state before DC and Puerto Rico? Like, what is the end goal here? Why are we in Iraq? They didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we, we toppled Saddam Hussein. We catalyzed the civil war in Iraq. When do we leave? Now we're there so long that we're actually choosing to wage proxy wars there. Why isn't Joe Scarborough, with his gigantic platform, millions of viewers asking this question? Because he's a hack. Anything that the Democratic Party does, even though he's a conservative, is good. Meanwhile, on Fox News, you know, um, they'll applaud Donald Trump, stay silent when he bombs Syria at a minimum, but then you'll have their ghouls like Tucker Carlson, you know, speak as if this is a terrible thing. Now, the truth is that it's bad bombing Syria, having a proxy war with Iran in Iraq is a bad thing regardless of which administration is in power. I don't care if the president has a D or an R next to his name. War is bad. And the question isn't whether or not, you know, um, we should do more to be antagonistic towards Iran and not re-enter this peace agreement that would prevent war. The question is, why are we in Iraq and the Middle East at all? That's what a responsible journalist or pundit would ask. But, you know, Joe Scarborough, he's not there to uh, really 
challenge the establishment or question the status quo. He is there to propagate the agenda of the Democratic Party. And if that agenda is bombing Syria and escalating with Iran, he will support it unequivocally and unquestionably so. But we can't allow them to get a pass when pundits with large platforms dangerously and recklessly saber rattle and beat the war drums. It's not okay. It's not okay when Fox News does it. And it sure as shit isn't okay when MSNBC does it. So I think that absolutely everyone should be paying attention to the unionization effort that is taking place in Alabama. So for those of you who don't know, Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama could be the first in the company's history to actually successfully form a union. Now, we won't find out until the end of March, which is when the vote takes place, but this has broader implications that extend far beyond Amazon. Not only could it create a sort of internal domino effect within Amazon, where more warehouses across the country choose to unionize, but it could catalyze a new movement for unionization across America, in Walmart, in, you know, other uh, companies. So, Obviously, uh, corporate America does not want this to happen. Amazon has been fighting tooth and nail, not only against this effort to unionize in Alabama, but uh, for years now, they've tried to thwart unions and the increasing um, talks of unions and popularity of unions. You know, now that people are exploited, especially during a pandemic, more than ever, we're seeing the necessity of unions. Uh, but Amazon, uh, they, they have been trying so thoroughly to brainwash their employees to be against unions that they've got to be hating this. Now, I want to show you this leaked video. Uh, this is from uh, a new trainee video. They, they show this to new employees, and this is just straight-up anti-union propaganda. This is an attempt to brainwash new hires. We don't badmouth unions in general, but we will speak openly with associates about unions, including any specific concerns about particular unions involved in organizing. And we share our preference for a direct working relationship frequently and boldly, even when no organizing activity has occurred. You will learn about the warning signs most commonly associated with early union organizing, as well as other warning signs that could indicate associate disengagement, vulnerability to organizing, or early organizing activity. While employees have the right to organize, we have a right and responsibility to share our position that a direct working relationship is better for the customer, the company, and the associate. In order to be able to do that effectively, it is critical that we recognize the early warning signs of potential organizing and escalate concerns promptly. If you see warning signs of potential organizing, notify your building HRM and GM site leader immediately. HRMs and GM site leaders should notify their assigned ER managers or ER principal immediately. The most obvious signs would include use of words associated with unions or union-led movements like living wage or steward, petitions or other concerted activity such as an associate purporting to speak on behalf of his or her co-workers when raising concerns, union graffiti, union t-shirts, hats, jackets, or other clothing, union flyers, and union visitors in or near the parking lot. Some signs are less obvious than finding the actual union flyer but they can still indicate associate disengagement, which is itself a warning sign for potential organizing. Examples include associates who normally aren't connected to each other suddenly hanging out together, associates who were close suddenly stop speaking to each other, groups of associates scatter when approached by management, increased associate negativity, anger, or confrontation, unusual complaints or change in passion or detail around complaints, 
unusual interest in policies, benefits, employee lists, or other company information, or any other associate behavior that is out of character. For example, an associate who normally leaves promptly begins hanging out in the break room for an hour after work each day. In order to recognize warning signs, it is critical that you know what an associate's normal behavior looks like. I love how they're like, well, we're not necessarily neutral, but we're also not anti-union. However, if any of your employees talk about unions whatsoever, if they even behave differently, definitely snitch on them. Report them immediately because we've got to snuff that shit out like that because we can't have no fucking unions here. And it's funny, like this reminds me of the anti-union uh, propaganda video that I was shown when I first started working at Walmart. It was just so like over the top, like they described it as, look, Walmart employers and employees they're a family. We're a family. Do we really want some outside influence coming in and dictating what we as a family choose to do? As if the employees like have any say whatsoever in the decisions of, you know, the executives and whatnot. It's just, it's hilarious. It's shameless. But unfortunately, this is pretty effective because just based on anecdotal evidence from myself, like I asked my coworkers about that anti-union video and a lot of them just kind of like, instinctively bought into it because they didn't really know any better but thankfully i think that times are changing and people are waking up and this amazon union could be a game changer if it does in fact get approved so as jason del rey of vox reports through the end of march 5,800 workers at an amazon warehouse in north central alabama have the chance to cast votes by mail to decide whether to unionize these employees are just a tiny fraction of amazon's 500,000 plus frontline u.s workforce but this union vote could reshape the company's labor practices and maybe the future of warehouse work in america as well the union vote at bhm1 a four-story amazon warehouse the size of 50 football fields located in Bessemer, Alabama, is the first attempt to unionize a large U.S. Amazon facility in the tech giant's 25-year history. If a majority of the workers who choose to vote opt for unionization, they'll earn a right to bargain for a contract with Amazon under the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, which represents retail staff at department stores like Macy's and H&M, as well as thousands of poultry plant workers. A union victory in Bessemer would mark a historic win for U.S. labor organizers who have long failed to crack Amazon, which is the second largest private sector employer in the U.S. and has been accused of demanding a punishing pace of work and surveilling its workforce too aggressively. It would also likely set off a union push at other Amazon facilities across the U.S. So I think it's pretty evident why Amazon does not want this union to form. Now, I want to play a clip from MSNBC that Case Study QB shared. Um, this kind of uh, is the story of one Amazon worker who explains how outrageous it is that, you know, they were paid as essential workers. They were given hazard pay at the start of the pandemic, but that was cut off immediately, just months into the pandemic. And even when cases surged to record highs, they weren't considered by the company as essential workers. And um, this story here is really important. And there's also some additional commentary from MSNBC that follows, which I, I think is uh, interesting as well. They took away the um, the pay after a couple of months of giving it to us. They took away the hazard pay and said that we were not uh, essential workers. And maybe the week later, whew, the week later, he gave, I think it was $10 million to Black Lives Matter. If it mattered, why aren't you taking care of your people? 
Now, when we talk about workers like Jennifer Bates, she represents a lot of people who are currently casting their vote, Katie, right now, and they're supporting unionization. But of course, we are seeing the counter campaign from Amazon itself in the form of flyering and communication online. And they issued this statement to us at NBC News when we asked them what their response was to Jennifer Bates and other other people who support unionization. And they say the fact is that Amazon already offers what unions are requesting for employees industry leading pay with a minimum $15 an hour starting wage comprehensive benefits opportunities for career growth all while working in a safe modern work environment but if you look at the bigger picture here Katie the issue really is for the workers who support unionization how much money Amazon has made in the pandemic they've done very well billionaire CEO Jeff Bezos of course his wealth exploding the pandemic holiday season was their best quarter ever and workers say they want more safety investment so they can continue working there and they do disclose to us they like working at Amazon they are appreciative of the fact that Amazon has a fulfillment center in Bessemer Alabama they just want better conditions a higher standard and that's why you see the president weighing in on this in a very unusual uh, situation Katie they've helped make the company a whole lot of money and they have been putting their lives on the line to do it for these past for this past year now Jolene Kent Joe thanks so much so it's really interesting that uh she brought up that point from them hey we pay our workers a $15 an hour wage so why would they need to unionize if they're already paid a living wage uh but here's the thing with that that $15 wage that they always brag about that is their excuse to not unionize and pay workers more because how much value their warehouse workers produce and employees across the board produce they know damn well that if their workers had a union they would be paid far more than $15 an hour so they really want to do everything in their power to make it seem as if they're they're looking out for their employees they're giving them $15 an hour but they know that if these employees actually had a union they would not be making a measly $15 per hour but that also misses the point because it's not just about pay it's also about regulations safety making sure that during a pandemic this company is actually following the proper procedures to protect their employees now i want to share a story from a different amazon warehouse for a moment here in virginia and this shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that amazon is not doing enough to look out for the safety of their employees. As Status Coup's Jordan Sheridan reports, Pashawn Brown, a 38-year-old Amazon worker who suddenly died in January after working in her Virginia warehouse's COVID testing area for several months, complained to human resources and supervisors about Amazon's unsafe and unsanitary conditions early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, emails obtained by Status Coup show. Pashawn's family couldn't afford an autopsy to find out what caused her death. According to her sister and other sources who worked with her in the the DDC-3 warehouse in Virginia, Brown had been administering COVID-19 nasal swab tests on co-workers for months before her death. While doing so, she wasn't provided the proper N95 mask, surgical gloves, gowns, goggles, or other protective measures nurses and doctors are supposed to wear while conducting COVID-19 testing. Amazon should have hired or paid third-party companies with medical expertise to conduct testing, Christian Smalls, an Amazon worker who was fired after blowing the whistle on the company's unsafe conditions early on in the COVID-19. COVID-19 pandemic told status coup. As a result of this company cutting corners to save money, workers like Pashan pay the price. So this is why unions are so crucial. They don't just negotiate for wages 
and benefits, but working conditions as well. And in the event Pashan had a union, if that particular warehouse had a union representing, uh, representing those workers, then she could have taken her concerns to the union who could have represented her, advocated for better equipment or advocated for them to hire a third-party company to come in, actual experts who know what they're doing. Now, because Amazon was reckless, presumably this individual who worked for Amazon under these unsafe conditions likely contracted COVID-19 and died. She went to sleep and never woke up. This is why unions are absolutely essential. They're essential. Now, I have to give the credit where it's due. I am very critical of Joe Biden, particularly lately because he's been making a lot of mistakes. But when it comes to the Alabama-Amazon unionization effort, he has spoken up and what he did was really powerful. He actually endorsed the effort to unionize by the Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers, full stop, full stop. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic the economic crisis and the reckoning on race, what it reveals, the deep disparities that still exist in our country. And there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. No supervisor, no supervisor should confront employees about their union preferences. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. And it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. No employer can take that right away. So he absolutely, without question, deserves a lot of credit for that. To have a sitting president endorse your effort to unionize, that really is powerful. It means a lot. It's everything. However, having said that, though, that's only the first step, because while it really is important for presidents and political allies to endorse these efforts at an individual level, what we really want to do is change the system so that way it isn't so difficult for employees across America to unionize in the first place. And as Mindy Asir of Jacobin argues, after decades of anti-union presidents or presidents who say one thing about worker power and do the exact opposite, Joe Biden could easily coast along on Sunday's video. It was arguably the most pro-union statement a U.S. president has made in decades. But here's the real litmus test for Biden, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. The PRO Act is the most sweeping pro-labor legislation in decades. It would effectively end anti-union right-to-work laws currently on the books in 28 states, institute financial penalties on employers that retaliate against workers who organize, prohibit employers' captive audience meetings, require employers to bargain a first contract in good faith, repeal the prohibition on second boycotts, an instrument of worker solidarity banned since the late 1940s, and bar employers from permanently replacing strikers. So again, I don't want to detract from what Joe Biden did, because what he did was really, really powerful. However, as the president, using your bully pulpit is just one of the many tools at your disposal to promote labor rights. 
to pass the PRO Act would be the next step to really actually in a concrete way make sure that you put the words that you said in that video into practice. And the words that he said were phenomenal. Like that's a huge boost to the workers in Alabama who are currently trying to unionize. So, um, look, we have to see how this plays out. It's going to be a fight. Amazon is doing everything in their power to influence and even bully the people in Bessemer, Alabama that work at their warehouse to vote no on this union. Uh, but hopefully, with efforts like Joe Biden endorsing this union and actual organizing and advocacy by allies, this can actually be accomplished and start a really positive pro-union trend in America. So I hope everyone, everyone is following the story because this is really crucial and it could be a game changer. So we've got another story to file under completely predictable and unsurprising, nevertheless still really, really infuriating. So as Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams reports, on Wednesday, ICC Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda confirmed the decision announced early last month to launch a formal investigation of the situation in Palestine, including three major wars in Gaza that killed thousands of people, most of them civilians. Bensouda said on Wednesday that the court's decision followed a painstaking preliminary examination undertaken by my office that lasted close to five years, while vowing her office will take the same principled nonpartisan approach that it has adopted in all situations. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's far-right prime minister, called Ben Suda's announcement absurd and in a tactic often employed in attacks to delegitimize criticism of Israeli policies and actions, undiluted anti-Semitism. Palestine advocates, however, welcomed the ICC probe while condemning U.S. opposition to it. So basically what's happening is the ICC is now formally investigating Israel's numerous human rights abuses of the Palestinian people and of Palestine. Now, Israel predictably is responding by saying this is anti-Semitism, which is absurd on its face, because if it's anti-Semitic to criticize the policies of a government, then we literally can't criticize any government in the world without being viewed as racist or Islamophobic or anything. So it's absurd. It's literally Israel weaponizing identity politics to shield themselves from criticism. And it's just not persuasive. But uh, the article referenced U.S. opposition to it, and of course, the United States is against this investigation. Not shocking at all. And the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who is a warmonger, tweeted out this. The United States firmly opposes an international criminal court investigation into the Palestinian situation. Love the intentionally vague wording there to, uh, you know, use instead of war crimes. We will continue to uphold our strong commitment to Israel and its security, including by opposing actions that seek to target Israel unfairly. So the Biden administration stance towards Israel is identical to the Trump administration stance towards Israel, which was identical to the Obama administration stance towards Israel, which was identical to the Bush administration's uh, stance towards Israel. I think you get the point here. The United States has been terrible in this regard. They are defending a modern-day apartheid, and it is absolutely morally detestable. For a country that purports to care about human rights, it's funny how they always give Israel a pass. And if you question the actions of the Israeli government, which is a right-wing government, that apparently means that you're anti-Semitic. Like, that's absolutely preposterous. Nobody is saying that the Jewish people or Israeli citizens are culpable here. What we're saying is that the actions of a government are creating a situation where the lives of citizens, it is 
in control over, like Israel is occupying Palestine, it is leading to human rights abuses. And there are even war crimes. U.S. says nothing. It's ridiculous. Now, thankfully, there are individuals in Congress now who are speaking up. Rashida Tlaib was one of them. And she writes, No one is above the law. The International Criminal Court has the authority and duty to independently and impartially investigate and deliver justice to victims of human rights violations and war crimes in Palestine and Israel. The U.S. should not interfere with its ability to do so. And that is exactly it. Like, if the United States genuinely believed that the Israeli government had clean hands here, then... What would be wrong with an investigation? Okay, you know what? We're confident. Go ahead and investigate Israel, and you'll find that the government's actions, they're fine. Like, there's no wrongdoing. So, go ahead, do your stupid investigation, and you'll conclude that they're innocent. But they're not saying that because the U.S. government knows that if there is an actual comprehensive and robust investigation into the actions of the Israeli government, they're going to find a plethora of war crimes, human rights violations, Palestinians are literally second-class citizens in Israel. I mean, what we're seeing now is vaccine apartheid where the Israeli government vaccinated uh, lots of their citizens, completely left out Palestinians from that equation. Like, it's absurd. So the fact that you can't even look into human rights abuses, uh, abuses and that that's like too much, that's being too unfair to Israel, it is absolutely just, it's Orwellian. It is Orwellian, to say the least. Now, Code Pink also had a really great response to this, saying, by Palestinian situation, do you mean Palestinians' rightful resistance to Israel's extremely cruel and inhumane occupation of Palestine and apartheid against the Palestinian people? Because that seems a whole lot more unfair than the International Criminal Court doing their job. And that is exactly it. Like, this is a double standard. If you dare to criticize the Israeli government and their right-wing prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is, who is corrupt, then, you know, that, that means you're anti-Semitic. But it's not Islamophobic to turn a blind eye to the crimes that they're committing against the Palestinian people in the West Bank and Gaza. That's not Islamophobic. That's not the issue here. The issue only is that you're questioning the Israeli government. I mean, this is absolutely just, it's idiotic to say the least. Like, I don't know how else to describe this situation. It's Orwellian, it's disingenuous, it's, it's gaslighting on behalf of the Biden administration, but it's not surprising at all. I mean, this is not something that anyone expected to change with the Biden administration. Um, this is a stance that we're going to continue to see. Like, even Barack Obama, when uh, he got cucked by Benjamin Netanyahu and the Republican Party invited him to address Congress. Like, Obama still couldn't really speak up because the entire uh, foreign policy establishment and military-industrial complex would be against him. Like, he felt like he couldn't speak up even when the Israeli prime minister made a fool of him in his own country that he's the leader of. So, I mean, if that doesn't get anyone to change, then nothing else will. Like, no president is ever going to do what they need to do, which is why we need, uh, you know, a grassroots movement, pressure in the form of BDS to stop Israel from doing this, like put pressure on them in a different way, since the US government very obviously is never going to do the right thing here. So not too long ago, the outrage mob even came for Mr. Potato Head. Can you imagine that? Now, according to liberals, 
potatoes are supposed to be gender neutral. I'm sorry, but I like my vegetables to have genders. Maybe that's just me. But I think that a toy where you can like take off the eyes and insert it where the ears are supposed to be. Talking about that, like focusing a lot of time and energy on that issue. That's really important. That matters. Uh, but not as much, apparently, as Dr. Seuss. Because Dr. Seuss has now been canceled. So are you seeing the theme here? First, uh, Mr. Potato Head was canceled. And then Dr. Seuss was also canceled. And conservatives lost it over Dr. Seuss. Like, this was the straw that broke the camel's back because they absolutely love Dr. Seuss. Case in point. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Sam, I am. Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouse? Look, man, I stopped reading Dr. Seuss personally by like second grade max. So if that's all that you prefer to read in your 50s, uh, you know, if that's all that your tiny little pea brain can handle, I'm not going to judge you. But I mean, I think you should try to at least graduate to more complicated readings. Try Goosebumps, perhaps, if we haven't canceled Goosebumps by now, too. Uh, but basically, this is what the right has focused on throughout the entire week. And it has been non-stop. All that we've been hearing about from conservatives is Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss. And basically, the argument from Fox News, at least in a nutshell, can be uh, summarized by this clip. Dana, I do not like the treatment of Dr. Seuss. I don't like it in a house with a mouse. I don't like it with a box with a fox. I don't like it here or there. <laughs> Bill Hammer, I don't like this anywhere. So basically, cancel culture is now going after Dr. Seuss, and Dr. Seuss is being treated very poorly. That's essentially what most of Fox News is arguing. However, Tucker Carlson tends to disagree with his colleagues on Fox News, and he's taking like a weird 4D chess approach to this, and he's like going at this from a really interesting and surprising angle. Now, conservatives will be tempted to chalk up the attacks on Dr. Seuss to the usual cancel culture gone mad. Look how hysterical and stupid the professional left is. They're even calling Dr. Seuss racist. And you've seen people say that on social media today. But it's totally missing the point. Canceling Dr. Seuss isn't stupid. It's intentional. They're banning Dr. Seuss not because he was a racist, but precisely because he wasn't. Wow, I am so pleased to see Tucker Carlson concerned about racism. <laughs> <laughs> he is someone who I, I certainly didn't think would care about racism, but you, you heard it here, folks. Tucker Carlson cares about racism. And the argument that he's making is that this isn't just like an ordinary cancel culture has gone too far issue. Like he is alleging that Dr. Seuss was banned. And even a United States senator, one of probably many, I haven't checked all of their Twitter feeds, has tweeted about this. Marco Rubio says, now six Dr. Seuss books are canceled too. When history looks back at this time, it will be held up as an example of a depraved socio-political purge driven by hysteria and lunacy. Now, it's interesting that they're alleging that Dr. Seuss has been canceled. Tucker Carlson even claims that uh, Dr. Seuss has been banned because according to what I'm seeing, sales for Dr. Seuss, since they started talking about how he's been canceled, have been through the roof. And if you go to Amazon Books bestseller list, 
you will see Cat in the Hat, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Horton Hears a Who, Dr. Seuss, Jordan Peterson, <laughs> Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss. Uh, and then when you go to the next page, you see even more Dr. Seuss. So for an author whose books are supposedly canceled and even banned, it seems like, you know, um, it's going to be okay. <laughs> They're going to survive this. However, that did not stop Fox News from absolutely going to bat for Dr. Seuss all week. Let's talk about Dr. Seuss. 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 Well, Dr. Seuss. 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 Dr. Seuss, 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 Seuss, and Dr. Seuss, 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 for Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Seuss, Dr. 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 Seuss, Hey, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, Seuss, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. That was not a comprehensive list, by the way. There's more. <laughs> there's there's more, believe it or not. And it reminds me of this. Their ultimate end is either North Korea or Venezuela. Just look at Venezuela. What country is this, Venezuela? They're going to be the left of Venezuela. 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 It's like conservatives are a hive mind and they're all controlled by one brain. Like, it's extremely creepy. So, what is the actual story here? Was Dr. Seuss canceled? Was Dr. Seuss banned? No. Not exactly. Um, Dr. Seuss... They themselves decided, like not the doctor, but the company that runs Dr. Seuss and sells his books, distributes his books, they decided on their own volition to not sell six books. Books that aren't really popular, like I haven't even heard of this one. I remember seeing this one as a kid. I don't know if I read it, but like these aren't the classics like Cat in the Hat, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, whatever the fuck. Like... These aren't the classics, like these are more obscure books. And this is what happened. NBC News explains, just witness the contrived hysteria about the fabricated cancellation of Dr. Seuss, the beloved children's books author, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the very profitable company which controls the estate of the late Theodore Seuss Geisel, the man behind the pen name, has decided on its own free will to stop publishing a half dozen of his books because the company told the Associated Press they portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong 
deploying stereotypes about black and Asian people in a manner that Seuss's own estate thinks is offensive and inappropriate. The Fox outrage machine revved itself to high dudgeon over how this private company has decided to conduct its business, bemoaning the Seussian scalp talking. The GOP's culture war ambulance chasers quickly followed suit. First, they outlawed Dr. Seuss. Mind you, Theodore Geisel died in 1991, and it's his own estate taking this action, and now they want to tell us what to say, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said in a mendacious non-sequitur while debating proposed election law reforms. So the entire Republican Party, one of two major parties in the United States, along with all of their propaganda outlets, has chosen to make this the hill that they want to die on. This as the go-to example to prove that cancel culture has gone too far, when in actuality, like, this wasn't spawned by outrage. Like, Dr. Seuss's estate said, let's pull these books. You know what we call that? That's the free market, bitch. That's the free market. Because they didn't believe that in modern society these books would be popular, or maybe they'd be controversial. So they themselves made a business decision. That's the free market. They weren't canceled. They pulled their own books. This is their decision. So, you know... If I look back to some of the videos that I unlisted, where I did interviews with idiots like H.A. Goodman, apparently, unbeknownst to me, that wasn't me just like unlisting videos that I think were problematic that I put out. That is me getting canceled. It may be me getting canceled by myself, but it's me getting canceled. So apparently, I am also a victim of cancel culture. I would like the benefits now, please. I should see exponential uh, growth in my views, in Patreon members. Like, this... Really, like, like, are we seeing what's happening here? I mean, I think we all see what's happening here, right? Getting canceled is extremely lucrative. Not only do you make the case that the left is bad, but simultaneously, you can lead to an explosion of sales in whatever product you're trying to hawk. It, it's absolutely pretty brilliant. Like, this is one of the best ideas that the right has come up with. And we've seen this, like, implemented at the grift level for people like, you know, um, Dave Rubin, where they will say, hey, this video was deleted because YouTube says it's problematic. I'm being censored. And then they'll post like pictures of themselves with like tape over their mouths. I don't know if Dave Rubin said this in particular or did this in particular. I mean, no, he's done it. But there, there's a lot of conservatives that'll like literally Photoshop tape over their mouth. Like if they have a video that was like deleted from YouTube or demonetized, like you've got to understand, like, like, do we not see what's happening this is very clearly a grift like this is them trying to profit off of cancel culture because not only does it make them money and get uh you know clicks for them uh but this absolutely makes the left look bad because who's you know who supports cancel culture nobody likes cancel culture i remember like when i was a kid uh back then we wouldn't call it cancel culture but i was really into the power rangers and i remember there was like multiple news stories about how violent the power rangers was and my mom was really worried that maybe this show was too violent and i was pissed like i, I was ready to like freak out if they took away my power rangers so it's like this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon but in 2021 america where you have a republican party who's completely out of ideas and has no real way to improve people's lives, but they desperately want you to think that they're populist and they represent normal Americans, this is what they have to, like, do to appeal to working Americans. They have nothing economically to offer to people. So they try to, like, pretend as if they're on your side by getting you to side with them on these sorts of, like, culture war bullshit issues that don't actually matter at all. I mean, e each week we go 
to dumber and dumber things like it was Mr. Potato Head and the Muppets. They've banned the Muppets. Now, uh, Dr. Seuss, and next week, I don't know what it's going to be. Is it going to be like Barbie or something? Who knows? Like, there's always going to be something that is completely insignificant and irrelevant, has no meaningful impact on like political discourse or politics or policy. But yeah, this is what the party, the Republican Party, one of two major parties in the richest country in the world is choosing to focus on. This is one of the many reasons why we are so fucked because this is the sort of shit that um, one of two major parties is choosing to focus on. It's not like Democrats are good. They're, they're terrible as well. Uh, but I mean, like, this is, this is clown shit. Like, this right here, like, focusing on Dr. Seuss, because Dr. Seuss took away their own books from sales. Like, you're not condemning the outrage mob. You are the outrage mob. You're the one who's outraged at the actions of a private company. Like, don't pretend as if you're against outrage and that you're counter counterculture. You are the motherfuckers who are the SJWs. You are as hypersensitive as you claim SJWs are. You're just anti-SJWs. You're the anti-social justice warriors. And, you know, you're using cancel culture to try to, you know, score political points. And it may work in the short time, but I promise you, like, how much you are focusing on this, it's going to get old fast. Like, I don't know what people are going to get tired of quicker, like cancel culture itself, like things getting canceled for being offensive, or people complaining about cancel culture non fucking stop i know that all of it is irritating as shit to me and i would like it to stop but this is what the gop is going to focus on like their entire cpac conference was titled america uncancelled so we know that exactly uh wh what exactly they're going to be focusing on this isn't going to go away anytime soon and they're going to be seeking out any and all issues that uh, help make their point about cancel culture and it's going to get more ridiculous as their desperation grows trust me on this well, that is everything, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode, as usual, before we leave, I want to thank all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for helping us not just to survive, but thrive as well. You all are absolutely crucial to our show's success, and I honestly cannot thank you enough. Um, if you want to follow us on TikTok, you could find us there at Humanist Report. And uh, I hope you notice that the quality of the show has improved. Uh, we are now coming at you live in uh, 1080p, shot in 4K, but exported in 1080p. So that's why my beard looks a little bit shittier because you can see every like out of place hair now. It's a little bit nerve wracking, I'll be honest, but uh, hopefully it's, it's an improvement. But that's all I've got. I'll see you all next week. Take care, everyone. My name is Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Bye.